By the way, in case you haven't heard, my brand new book, Feel Good Productivity, is now out. It is available everywhere books are sold, and it's actually hit the New York Times and also the Sunday Times bestseller list. So thank you to everyone who's already got a copy of the book. If you've read the book already, I would love a review on Amazon. And if you haven't yet checked it out, you may like to check it out. It's available in physical format and also ebook and also audiobook everywhere books are sold. Hi, my name is Cliff Weitzman. I am 22 years old and I'm a student at Brown University and I'm severely dyslexic. What you're about to hear is an interview between me and Cliff Weitzman. He is the founder and CEO of Speechify, which is an app that helps basically convert the internet into audiobooks. 24 million people using the app. Yeah. That's a lot of people. So you're, it's a lot of so people. So you're a CEO of a company that, has, that employs 100 people. That's right. That's wild. I don't care what your pedigree is. I don't care if you went to Brown or Harvard or Stanford. I don't care if you worked at Facebook or Google. I care that you learn fast. You have fire in the belly for the product, high loyalty to the team, and you're able to ship features fast and move metrics. And that's all I care about. If I get to learn, there's nothing that's in my way that stops me from learning. Damn, that's really cool. Okay, so for a bit of context, where is Speechify now and how long have you guys been working on it? Um, I've been working on it for six and a half years. Um, there's 24 million users who use it. There's 100 of us working in the company, a little more than 100. There's like 72 engineers. And people consume almost 10 billion words per month. Bloody hell. 24 million people using the app. Yeah. App and Chrome extension. That's a lot of people. So you're, it's a, lot of so people. you're a CEO of a company that, has, that employs 100 people. That's right. That's wild. It's fun. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So we left off our previous, our previous uh, podcast interview in around about 2015 when you were at university. And one of the things you said was that uh, you, you were kind of struggling because of your dyslexia to do all of the reading that was assigned to you in school as well. And at some point, you found a way to convert text into speech. Yes. So what was the story there and how did yes. that progress into where we are now? So, right, I moved to the U.S. when I was 13, didn't speak English. Summer reading book before high school was Marley and Me. My mom had to read it to me. And I worked really, really hard in high school. I applied to 26 schools and I got rejected from most of them. But I got into this one place called Brown University in Providence, Rhode Island. And I love this place more than anywhere else in the world. My cheeks started to hurt from smiling so much three weeks in. Uh, but we had a summer reading book, Sons of Providence. And I spent the entire summer before school trying to learn how to read this book. And I didn't finish. I finished maybe not even half. And I didn't want to be the one kid who showed up in school not having read his book. So my mom read it to me. But she worked and she didn't have time to do the entire thing. So we finished in maybe a quarter and I had a quarter left. Um, and before I had this assignment, I was trying to place into a higher level chemistry class. And I was going through the textbook. And my younger brother, Tyler, is a year and a half younger than me. Um, he was also interested. So we hooked up this text-to-speech system on our computer to read out the textbook to us. And Tyler helped me crack a Kindle version of this book I needed to read because it didn't have an audiobook. And we ran it into my iPhone overnight and it worked and I listened to it on the plane and that's how I finished the book. And I was like, wow, text-to-speech is amazing. And you know, Tyler is, is very talented. He started coding when he was in third grade, building Dragon Ball Z websites. Uh, in fifth grade, he taught himself assembly and started hacking video games, MapleStory. He skipped four and a half years of math in high school at Exeter, and then he studied math as an undergrad at Stanford, became president of his fraternity as a second-year student, dropped out to run a cybersecurity company that he founded full-time. Then he came back to finish his math degree, finish his master's in AI, um, and focused on text-to-speech and natural language processing. Um, while he was doing that, um, I was in college. I built 36 products, everything from three printed skateboard breaks, iPhone apps, websites, payments companies. Um, and, you know... I still had trouble reading. And the solution was I built an app for my phone that could take pictures of physical books and handouts and it would OCR them, optical character recognition, and then it would read them to me. And then I built a parser for PDFs where I could upload a PDF and it would you know, 
run natural language processing on it and then it'd figure out how to read that thing to me. And the key was I loved listening fast. So, you know, most people might listen to podcasts like this one at 2x speed. Um, so I would listen to audiobooks first at one, well, in the beginning I didn't speak English. So I listened to 0.75 and then 1x and then 1.25 and then 1.5 and then 2x and then 2.5 and then 3x and 3.5. So I got really good at listening fast. Highly recommend uh, the Chrome extension video speed controller because I would 4X speed YouTube videos too by 0.1 increments. So I built that for text-to-speech on my computer. I had a Mac app that I could highlight anything and it would read it to me at 750 words per minute. And if I was reading through a physics textbook that was pretty dense, I dynamically slow it down to 350 words per minute. And the second I got through the area that was complicated, I go back to 750. And if I was reading a Facebook post, I'd listen at like 900 words per minute. And so the fact that I could dynamically change the speed with a keyboard shortcut was life-changing to me. And it made it so that I continuously got faster and faster and faster at my ability to listen. And I wanted to do that for everything. And so every time I couldn't listen to something, I would code to figure out how to make that thing listenable. And my experience in college was I came in, I studied renewable energy engineering. So it was a mix of physics, engineering, computer science. Brown has a very open curriculum. So I took a lot of design classes at RISD down the street, um, the Rhode Island School of Design. And I did eight hackathons where I didn't know how to code. I would jump on a table, do a backflip, convince people to work with me, and then I would pitch and I won with my team uh, half of those hackathons. The problem is after the hackathon, no one would keep working on the product. And I was like, okay, I got to learn how to code. Otherwise, I'm not going to make any progress. So my second year at Brown, I took my first computer science class. Um, and I had, you know, it was tough. It took me about 13 hours to finish the first assignment. Most people took like three or five. And the problem was I would always misspell variables, right? Mm -hmm. So if you are dyslexic and you're very bad at spelling and the variables don't have the same name, the program crashes. So I just brute forced it. Every day I'd come to the you know, computer science lab maybe at 8 a.m. and I'd pack like eight peanut butter sandwiches and I'd work there until midnight, sometimes two in the morning, and I would do all my other homework there. And I did this for maybe a month or two. And by the end of that, I started to be able to tell when I'd make a mistake as a result of a spelling mistake versus a mistake versus an issue with coding. I became really good at debugging. Um, and then I took like two other computer science courses, and then I took one on Udemy by Rob Percival called the Complete Web Developer Course, and another one on iOS app by Rob Percival called the Complete iOS Developer Course, where I built uh, 19 apps, 24 hours of video, um, and like mini clones of like Instagram and Tinder and Snapchat and Google Maps. And so I just had a repository on my computer of 19 apps that I built and like 15 websites that I built. And you're building these as part of this guy's Udemy course. Yeah. Well, that's pretty good. Yeah. And yeah. I just did this, um, instead of going home for winter break, I would just sit and I would do these courses. And over the summer I'd do an internship and I would do these courses. Um, and so every hackathon I did after I did maybe 42 in all, um, I could just pull code that I built for other apps. I'm like, cool, you meant it would make an app that does this? Great, let me just like Frankenstein something together. Towards the time I was graduating, I ended up building this tool called findmescholarships.com. And you know, in the US, school is 66K a year. I was trying to figure out how to pay for it. And uh, I was running all these companies, um, you know, 3D printed skateboard breaks, whatever it might be, to try and pay for school. And I realized actually I can also apply for scholarships. And most scholarships that were very good matches for me, I would win, right? Imagine a scholarship specifically for people studying renewable energy or who are good at math or who are Jewish from Marin County. And I realized that that was the key, find scholarships that are unique to you. So then I was like, well, it's tough to find good scholarships online. Let me hire someone to help me. And so I ended up hiring, um, in total, I think I hired about 40 people 
on Upwork from the Philippines, but I whittled it down to like 10 who were really good. So I had 10 freelancers in the Philippines whose full-time job was to find and apply to scholarships for me. I just made a Google Sheet, numbered it one to 100, and I was like, cool, every scholarship has to be like more than $5,000. And I uploaded every essay I'd ever written and we matched the right essay and like it worked really well. So then I opened it so other people could use it too. Um, And I kept, you know, building these projects and then I graduated. And all my friends were getting jobs at Palantir and Goldman Sachs, McKinsey and Google. And I was like, I don't want to do this. I don't want to work at any of these companies. I want to do my own thing. But none of the things that I had worked on up until that point did I think warranted the level of ambition that I felt towards what I was going to do with my life. Okay. So you're not thinking that, hell, I can't wait to work on findscholarships.com for the next 10 years. <laughs> so find me scholarships. The beautiful part about it is I got to know all the people who I was working with. And so, for example, Nadine um, from the Philippines, she, you know, her day job didn't pay her that much. Um, and she really didn't like it, but she's an artist. You know, she loves painting um, on a tablet. And I was like, well, why don't you learn graphic design? And she's like, oh, I don't know what to do, whatever. So I got her an account for Figma. Um, and I bought her a course on how to do Figma and she started learning and then I helped her, you know, find some jobs as a graphic designer. And there was someone else who I taught him how to do auto layout for iOS and someone else I taught how to scrape a JavaScript. And I was like, you know what? All these people outside of the United States, they are smarter people in the United States. They just don't have access to these jobs and they don't have access to like the one or two things that you need to learn how to do. And if you knew how to do it, you'd crush it, right? So you have a Skillshare course, I think, for how to use Premiere. Hmm. Amazing. Anyone who goes and learns how to use Premiere from that course can go immediately make $25 $25 an hour being a video editor. Let me teach people the basic skills and then help them get jobs. So that I was excited about, but it was so much work to manage so many people remotely. It was a big, big headache. And I wrote a 30 page paper about my worldviews um, and started thinking and figured out like the 25 things that I believe that most other people don't believe. And I read a ton of biographies and I started reading S1 filings. The, S1 um, filings? What are those? It's the document you file to the SEC before you take your company public. Uh, before you do IPOs. And I started studying the companies that I thought were like the 100 best companies that have ever been made. And so I read the S1 for like Amazon and Google. And I, and, I, and I built this conviction around what I wanted my company to look like. And the conclusion I had is I wanted to build something, number one, that did not make money off of ads. Number two, that I could not have built it three years ago. So it depended on some sort of innovation, right? Because if, if it was a great idea, somebody else would have built it. I wanted something that was new technology, I wanted something that created real value in the world, ideally for people similar to me. And I realized that people similar to me were pe- people like me who had dyslexia, you know, ADHD. And the technology I got really excited about was deep learning. So within artificial intelligence, there's a subcategory called deep learning uh, inside of neural networks and specifically narrow applications of deep learning. So speech synthesis, optical character recognition, transcription, translation, natural language processing, recommendation engines. This is six and a half years ago. 2015, deep learning started to get really good. And I started reading all these papers, WaveNet, and I was like, I can build a 10x, 100x better product for text to speech if this stuff existed and it was good today. The problem is it took like an hour of processing to create like five minutes worth of audio. And I was like, well, Moore's Law, I know it's gonna get fast. So let me just build all the infrastructure. I build an amazing app. I'll build an amazing Chrome extension, Mac app, everything. And little by little, as the technology got better, I'd plug it into the system that I built. And so that's what I sought out to do. And so in the beginning, no normal person would use this product because the quality was too low. But my thesis was, you know, if text-to-speech gets really good, everybody will use this. No brainer. 
So I started writing a book publicly online about my experience with dyslexia. I'd write 300 to 500 pages, uh, sorry, words per day. And I posted on Facebook groups for moms uh, of kids with dyslexia and ADHD. Mm. And I posted on Reddit threads and I put it on Medium as well. And um, I built a big following of uh, moms of kids like me. And it started to be the case to this day, 10 to 15% of our reviews on the app store are people who say they genuinely started crying when they use Speechify because it solved such a big problem for them. And then I started even before that visiting schools for kids with learning differences. Um, and so that cohort loved the product. And as the product got better, we started having not only people with dyslexia or vision issues or ADHD, but people who had autism or they were a second language learner of English or they had a concussion. And then we started having normal professionals who didn't have any learning difference whatsoever. Doctors, lawyers, accountants, people in the military, executives, people in finance. And it's just because the product kept getting better and better and better and better and better. Um, and so with time, uh, the next step was building the team. So that was building the product, right? And two and a half years in, I still struggled with, you know, acquiring users and getting people to use it enough. But like, if you grind in one direction, so this is the thing I learned building all these products in college, right? I built maybe in total about 36 and I took classes in every department you can imagine, right? Biotechnology and medicine, um, you know, electricity and magnetism. And, and, and I tried different fields. You don't make pro you don't make progress like this going in a bunch of different directions. You make progress like this going in one direction. And when you hit a brick wall and you crumple, you pick yourself back up, you go back, you don't go in, you go again against the same brick wall over and over and over and over again until it cracks. And then you keep running like Mario and there's another wall and you crap, you, you crash through it again. Because those brick walls you're willing to run through, other people are not willing to run through this, them. And the thing is, text to speech has been around since like the 1960s. It predates the internet, but it's always sucked. And I was like, I'm just gonna make it really good. And cool. So when we passed that, it was a matter of how can we get the best people in the world to work at Speechify? And so when we were 25, 28 people, 18 of the folks in the company previously were either CTO, CEO, or VP of engineering at the company that beforehand. And you, you, know, you met a bunch yeah. of them. Okay. So that's been a, a whistle-stop tour of how we how we kind of got to that point. I'd like to kind of rewind the yeah. clock back a bit. So these, um, okay, firstly, learning to code. To what extent is it useful today for someone to learn how to code? If you want to be a founder in 2022, you have to learn how to code. You don't have an option not to. Here's the things that are important to consider. Number one, you do not need to be good at math to be good at coding. Number two, you don't need to be good at spelling to learn how to code. Number three, you don't need to know English or be good at English to know how to code. Given that, there's no reason for you to not learn how to do it. You don't need to be the best, but you need to understand it. Okay, and you, So if you want to manage engineers or have engineers work with you, you have to be able to under, you know, know what TypeScript is, what Node.js is, what React is, right? What do you use Erlang for? Whatever. Uh, memory management. Like You just need to be able to use these words, number one. Number two, there's so many good mental models that come from coding, right? First in, first out, you know, topography math, map, like find the highest point. Um, it helps so much in decision-making and strategy. Um, and people can just bullshit you about how long something will take or what it, if you don't know how to ask the right questions. So if I interview to be an engineer at Speechify, I get rejected. There's no way I'd pass the programming test. But it's so important that I understand what's happening. Um, and again, all you need to do is take a course or two that'll take no more than 30 hours from your life to just understand what's going on. And that's it. And do it with a friend. You know, Find a way of committing. You don't need to have a degree in it, hmm. but you need to play around with it. Yeah. 
Yeah, I find that that's still, you know, I still get emails every day from people being like, how do I make money on the internet? Yeah. And it's so hard to say anything other than like, look, learning how to code is a really, a really good first step. There are a lot of people that try to go down the creator route and sure, that's fine. But I think the expected value of learning how to code is just way bigger, way, way, you know, the, the, the payoff for everything in your life is just way higher than let me try and make some gaming YouTube videos, which is an area that a lot of people try and go down and competing with like a zillion other people doing the same thing. Even being a creator, I'll give you an example. Like when I was a kid, I used to make parkour videos for YouTube all the time. So I got really good at iMovie and you know some other editing software. But I don't use TikTok that much as a consumer. But I want to make TikTok videos because I think that it would be a great advertisement for Speechify. And um, so I don't want to use TikTok on my phone, but CapCut is an amazing editing software for TikTok. I haven't learned how to use CapCut yet. And I've had it on my phone for at least a month. And I'm actually genuinely frustrated at myself that I haven't taken the time to sit down for an hour and just learn how to use CapCut. So that's probably going to happen in the next like month. Yeah. And here's when you know that I'm finally going to sit down and sacrifice not talking to the team, not hiring more people, not spending more on ads, whatever, not learning something new that I haven't. It's when I want it enough. And so if you want to make money on the internet and you haven't taken the 30 hours to learn how to code, you just don't want it enough. And this is coming from a person who is literally dyslexic. His, my first language is not English, right? I do not have a high aptitude for programming to begin with. You just got to learn how to do it. And so the same thing is true for learning any skill on the internet, using Figma, using Photoshop, whatever it might be. You got to first learn how to use the tool and then implement it to your advantage. You mentioned that learning how to code is basically a requirement for people who want to be founders. Mm. Are there any other categories of people that you think learning how to code would be, would be helpful for? It's helpful for everybody. Um, it's not required for everybody. As a founder, you have to know it because technology is so core to building an exponential growth product. Um, and you're going to have engineers who work for your company. And so you just you need to understand what's going on. Computer science is just incredible because it has so many tool sets for how to think. So when I was in high school, I was really interested in economics, right? Keynesian economics, Hayek, Mises, uh, Malthus. I was so, I read so many books about it and I read so many books, listened to so many books um, about philosophy and business and theology and all this kind of stuff. They taught me things like Giffen goods, right? Um, diminishing marginal returns. Um, what happens when the PPF curve shifts to the right? All this stuff is key to how my brain just operates on a daily basis. And it lets me explain things in my head to myself that otherwise I would not be able to explain. Computer science gave me like an equal amount of data structures and algorithms for how to think. Um, and that is key for making better decisions and being able to use more information. So if you want to think about your brain um, as a machine, right? It has a certain amount of processing power. And so you can either upgrade the hardware or you can upgrade the software. So I'd say that I have an okay brain, right? The place where I, you know, the people have, you know, IQ, intelligent quotient, uh, EQ, emotional intelligence, AQ, adversity quotient. The place where I break the scale is adversity quotient. I like never give up in places where other people would. My IQ is good. It's not great. Um, I would argue, but you can upgrade your software. So that's one way of upgrading the software of your brain. It just teaches you new methods of thinking. So anyone who needs to make decisions on a regular basis, highly recommend at least spending 20, 30 hours studying the basics of computer science. Fantastic. This episode of Deep Dive is very kindly being sponsored by Hostinger. Now, if you're looking to start a business or develop your personal brand in 2024, then you're going to need a website. But the question of where to start is a question that I get asked all the time. So if you've ever wanted to set up a website, but you've had a question of where to begin because there's all these different options out there, 
then Hostinger has literally everything you'll need. Hostinger is a top global website hosting service with servers all around the world. It's fast and reliable, and with over 2 million users, it's becoming one of the fastest growing web hosting services out there. We've recently moved our website over to Hostinger to host my personal website, and not only was the transition completely seamless, but the tools were actually really simple to use as well. And I really wish something like this had been available when I was first starting my business like 12 years ago. If you're new to web design, then they've got everything you need to make a professional looking website. One of the really interesting features is their AI website builder, which can help you make a custom website in literally seconds and a whole suite of other really useful AI tools, including a logo creator, an image generator, and a heat map tool as well. It's super easy to use with a drag and drop editor for simple customization, and you don't need any coding or technical knowledge at all. Hosting it comes out to less than $3 a month, which includes a free domain name, so it's super affordable. And if you use the link in the video description or in the show notes, which is hostinger.com slash and if you use the code aliabdal in all caps uh, at checkout, then you will also get 10% off. So thank you again to Hostinger for sponsoring this episode. And so these products that you made, these th 36 different products, was that kind of post-learning how to code? Or were you trying to build stuff on the internet pre-learning how to code? Um, pre-learning how to code. So the first thing that I built in high school was a company called Eclipse Coupons. And then I built a um, pressurized air cannon. It's like DIY type thing. Um, and then I built a 3D printed skateboard brake, and then I built a mini Faraday cage that you iron onto your pocket uh, to block cell phone radiation from affecting reproductive organs. And then I built a iPhone app called um, Starter Pack. And that's the point where I started using coding. What got you into building all the? Because like most, it's most kids wouldn't be building building stuff in, in high school. Like, what was it about you that made you go down that route? So when I was young, my dad would come home after work. And, you know, maybe we'd eaten dinner or something, but we just like play math games, right? He'd like ask me and Tyler, you know, five plus three times 20 divided by four, whatever. And we play chess and he'd say, let's go on a walk. And we're like, great, we'll go on a walk. And on the walks, we'd ask him questions and he'd just teach us about the world. You know, how does the stock market work? What's the difference between a mutual fund and a hedge fund? Why is the sky blue? And I really admired my dad growing up and I still very much admire my dad. Um, but I think I got a very deep understanding of how the financial works world operates um, as a kid. And I realized very quickly that if I wanted to have freedom, it's good to have a source of income. Um, and then I read The 4-Hour Workweek by Tim Ferriss, I think when I was 17 or 18. Hmm. And I was like, wow, I would love to build a muse company. So my goal is I'm going to build something that makes me 300K a year, whether I work or not. And so I was working towards succeeding in doing that. And I'd started building stuff even before I read that book. But that book, like, again, gave me a bunch of mental models of how to think about it that were very useful. Um, and so all that stuff inspired me to make stuff. And then, like, naturally, I just like, you know, I'd MacGyver things with bicycles when I was a kid. I always liked making tinkering. Um, and I think that even more than an entrepreneur, I am an inventor. I love inventing things. Um, and uh, the word entrepreneurship actually comes from a Latin root meaning to elevate economic resources from an area of low yield to an area of high yield. Effectively, you're creating value where there was none before. Um, and if you think about, Emerson has a great essay about this called On Wealth. The person who made the steam engine, right, there was a bunch of like scrap metal, Thomas Avery, uh, in his garage or whatever workshop. And he applied his thought to matter, rearranged atoms in a certain way, and then elevated those resources and multiplies them times the thousands and a million. And now you can use the steam engine to like pump water out of wells and create electricity and move trains across the country. Um, that's the closest thing humans can do to magic. So I like creating magic. Uh, and so you do that by inventing and then by bringing your dreams into reality. And so there's a portion, which is like being the technologies, technologist and then coming up with an idea, making it work. And the second one is how do you get people to actually use it?
So you're at college, you've built, you've built a few things in the past and then you decide I need to learn how to code. And then at that point you take this Udemy course on web development and iOS development. And now that really accelerates just your ability to make stuff. Yeah. And then you put into practice all these hackathons that you're going to. And so presumably when you have the idea for like, Hey, text-to-speech is interesting. It yeah. starts, it gets the gears grinding in your, in your head in a way that if you weren't familiar with coding computer science and stuff, you'd probably have thought like most other dyslexic people I'd be too there. scared of it. Yeah. yeah. That this is kind of, this is kind of hard, but as soon as you have that knowledge and you're like, hang on, this is, there is the possibility that I could make a text-to-speech en- speech engine and you were kind of hacking away at it yourself. You start thinking that, okay, could this turn into a company someday? Yeah, that's exactly right. And so I decided, you know what? I'm not going to take a job. I'm going to stay at Brown. I'm going to stay here as a visiting scholar. Uh, I'm not going to pay, get paid any money. And, you know, it's even like a little bit embarrassing, right? Your parents are like, what are you doing? Right? Parents, friends are like, so is Cliff unemployed? Like, what's he doing? And I'm like, you know, even if I fail, that's fine. Because I can always go and try to get that job at Google. Mm. Let's say my parents are like super embarrassed, right? I can't sleep at home. Okay, I have probably like 15 friends who let me crash on the couch every once in a while. So I'll, I'll circulate between them. But I would just be sad going directly to take one of these jobs. I would, and so my thing was, okay, I'm either going to find a company where I really admire the management team. And I'm going to work there. And I applied to a couple of these companies. I just didn't get in at the time. Um, or I'm going to do my own thing. I said, okay, I'm going to do my own thing. And then I was really excited about narrow applications of deep learning. So I was like, cool, I'm going to start building this stuff. And then I got really good at user acquisition, right? Running ads on YouTube and Facebook and Instagram and building, you know, products that people share with each other. How did you get good at that? Like pre-Speechify? Um, I got good at it during Speechify. Okay, right. So my thesis is your number one role as a founder is to learn. You learn how to code, how to design, how to talk to users, how to recruit, how to do whatever. As a CEO, you have three roles. Make sure there's enough money in the bank, set the vision, and put the right people in the right seats. Um, but, you know, at this point, and even today, I'm just always learning new things. And my system for learning is I read literally 100 books on the topic, and then I talk to every expert there is, and then I rewrite the playbook from scratch. So for ads, what I did is I read all the books that I could, and then I made a list of the top 100 best performing consumer subscription companies in the world. And then I flew around the world, and I met all of them. And I sent them emails, I sent them Facebook messages and Instagram messages and LinkedIn messages. And I just went and I, you know, got to know the founder of Audible, the founder of Grammarly, the founder of Reflectly, the founder of Lightrix, um, the founder of Lululemon, Richard Branson, whatever it was. And I, the, the CMO of Airbnb, the CMO of Netflix. And I would just spend time with them. And in some cases, I would literally go into the office, sit behind them and saw how they bought ads. And then I would go in and do the same thing. And then I wanted to get good at creating content. So, um, you know, someone had happened to introduce me to Amar from Yes Theory at a certain point when I was living in LA. And this was before I got really into ads. And Amar and I became like instant best friends, right? We started going on a lot of adventures together. We were like very similar people. And then Amar introduced me to Logan. And then Logan and I started doing a bunch of adventures together. And he helped me like shoot one of my ads. And then um, we met through Valentine. And then I met... Um, Eric, because he was a big user of Speechify. And then Eric introduced me to Mr. Beast. And then I went and I slept in Jimmy's house for like a week and like saw how the, like James operates and Tyler and the entire production team. Um, and at a certain point, what I did is I made a list of the top 100 best performing ads in history. And I literally sat in my house in LA and I remade all the ads. And some of them did really well and some of them did really bad. Um, same thing as coding. I just put in the time to learn. Um, and that's it. Down. Okay, so... Someone listening to this is like, so the, I've, I've, I've kind of heard bits of your story before and we've, we, we, we've talked a bunch of times and I'm always just absolutely floored by just a, the, 
the tenacity and just the going overboard that you do on, on everything. Yeah. And B, just like how casually you talk about it. You're like, oh yeah, you know, I wanted to learn about ads. So I just like Googled the top 100 best performing consumer companies and I just emailed them all and said, can I just hang out with you? And I just flew around the world hanging out with them. There are so few people that I know who would be thinking in those kind of ways. They'd be thinking, I need to learn how to get good at ads. Let me watch a YouTube video. Yeah. Um, okay, maybe there's a course. Oh, but it's $300 for this course. Oh, I don't know if I can. Oh, you know what? Screw it. Let me just screw around myself. Like, what is it about you that like, how did you get to that point where you're literally sending 100 emails and going around the world to hang out with these people? I can actually answer this question really well. Okay. Let's take us back to 2019 before 2020. 2020 is when I emailed all these people. 2019, I did not have any money. And I met this wonderful woman, um, Jennifer Sandel, who I love dearly to this day. Um, and her daughter, Anna Sandel, is also dyslexic. And Anna started working with us at Speechify. And they offered me that I could live out of their guest house. And so I was living in this guest house in Palo Alto, paying no rent, trying to make this company work. And Anna was using Speechify, and she started helping me work on it, et cetera. I started studying SEO, studying ads, taking courses, figuring it out. And I was not making the progress that I wanted. God damn it, Ali. I was trying, and I was not succeeding. And I was so frustrated that I was not succeeding. So what I ended up doing is I pulled up Google Sheets, and I made a calendar of every single hour and every single day. And I retroactively and moving forward wrote what I spent my time on. Was I sleeping? Was I taking a walk? Was I driving somewhere? Was I eating? Was I studying SEO? Or was I implementing SEO? Was I coding? Was I doing whatever? And even when I worked on the first versions of the app, I committed that I would spend five hours a day coding in Xcode. And I measured it with rescue time. And if I did not spend five hours a day coding in rescue time, by 10 a.m. the next day, I had to do 300 push-ups and 200 pull-ups. And I had a group chat with Simmer Mangit, Max Deutsch, Valentin Perez, and Tyler Weitzman, and I would tell them if I didn't do it, and if I didn't do the consequence, I had to run 10 miles that weekend. And I kept not making progress. Um, and so I was like, cool, I've taken the courses. I'm still not where I wanted to be. Most people maybe at that point just stop. I was like, no, I can't stop, I want it. So I'd message people who could help me. Sometimes I knew them, sometimes I didn't. And so in the case of, okay, well, then how did you like find the, First of all, how did you even find a list, Cliff, of the top 50 consumer subscription companies in the world, the top 100? Like I found the scholarships or everything else. Um, uh, there's a website called Sensor Tower that ranks iOS apps by their revenue. And so I just hired a bunch of uh, Philippines-based virtual assistants to just index it for me. And I used maybe seven different sources, and then I made a list. And then I asked them, okay, find the CEOs and the heads of growth and the heads of marketing on Instagram, and then put them in the Google Sheet. And then I want you to include the link to their Instagram, LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, um, and their email. And then I made a list by each one. So now I have three people from every single company and I have five sources of information for, uh, of uh, contact. And then for each one of those people, I put three rows, uh, reach out number one, number two, number three, did they respond back? And that entire sheet is full. Uh, every single person got three messages, at least from me. And then eventually they'd respond. And I'm okay with people not responding to me because I'm always polite, I'm honest, I'm direct, I'm concise. What are you saying in these messages? Uh, what's the last cold email that I sent? Um, let's say I'm messaging you. Sure. Be like, hey, Ali, just watch your podcast on Brandon Sanderson. Kaladin is my favorite character I've ever read about, period. I really admire the way in which you interview your guests. I think you're extremely... Um, Thoughtful and well-researched. I'm considering starting a podcast. So far, I've interviewed the president of the World Bank um, and uh, seven Teal fellows. 
the person I most want to interview is uh, Derek Sivers. Could you be free for a 10-minute Zoom call Friday at 3 p.m. or 4 p.m. or Saturday at this time or this time? Um, my best, Cliff. P.S. Before this, I won Harvard's hackathon, Stanford's hackathon, and MIT's hackathon, and I'm studying renewable energy engineering at Brown. Cliff. So uh, that email shows that I actually follow you. It shows what I admire about you genuinely. It's relatively short. It still shows that I have credibility in what I'm doing towards it. And when you read the email, you're like, okay, he's not like just some kid on the internet. Like mm. he's working hard. And if I didn't have those accomplishments, I would say the same things I would say at high school. Hey, Ali, my name is Cliff Weitzman. I'm a junior at Redwood High School. I'm the president of the speech and debate team. I recently won the state uh, competition for Sparta Debate. Uh, I'm the president of the Jefferson Awards Community Service Club. Um, and you changed my life. You are the person who made me learn how to edit videos. And I have now made 300 YouTube videos. Um, you know, I only have 500 subscribers, but uh, I want to be like you when I grew up. Would you be free for a three minute, for like a 15 minute call at this time or this time? Um, if not, here's my two questions. And if you just send a message that is well composed, where you show that you've done work, here's the thing that people, people love. And I was just talking to my brother about this. Um, we have a friend, Nima Barty, who's the CEO of Atlas. I love talking to Nima about his business. He's worked on it for maybe two years. I give the kid, an, the kid, I give Nima an inch, he takes a mile. Like if I give him a piece of advice, by God, a week later, he's done what I said. And even if he didn't originally believe it, he'll still do it. And I'll, I can see the work. You know how satisfying it is to give someone a piece of advice? You know, you do. To give someone a piece of, and they follow it. Any person who's ever given me advice in my life, who I sought their advice, I have implemented what they asked to the letter. And then I came back to them a week later. I was like, hey, I did this. Here's the results. It's so fun. And then they get validation. Either it works or actually this is how the world is today. Great. I'm getting you. It's useful for me that I'm talking to Cliff because he's validating all my ideas in the field. Mm. So, okay. So I'd send these messages and then I get on a Zoom call. And in the Zoom call, you're like, hey, where in the world are you? Blah, blah, blah. We get on a call. As part of the call, they realize that I've been listening to 100 audiobooks every single year for the last 12 years. And they'd be like, oh, have you ever read whatever? And they'll mention some obscure book. And I'd be like, yeah. And then we'll, we'll start a conversation about that book. And they'll be like, wow. Um, and at the end, I'll be like, you know, I'd love to come visit you in Copenhagen. And they're like, sweet. Well, if you're ever here, let me know. And I'm like, great. How about Saturday? <laughs> <laughs> and they'd be like, what do you mean? And I was like, I'll come visit you on Saturday. And he's like, okay, cool. Cool. Where is your office? Sweet. I'll book the hotel nearby. I'll fly to Copenhagen. I'll fly to Israel. I'll fly to wherever they are. I'll I went to Richard Branson's island, Necker Island, and I spent three days with him there. And he like taught me a bunch of really good things. Um, we talked about Lululemon in the beginning of the, uh, before we started. Chip Wilson, I read his biography. I thought he was amazing. It took me four years to get him to meet with me. And he said, okay, we'll meet. Great. I flew to Vancouver. I was in Miami at the time. It takes 20 hours to get from Miami to Vancouver. And I went there for 14 hours. And we did a like four hour hike. It was amazing. And then I flew to San Francisco and back to Miami. If I get to learn, there's nothing that's in my way that stops me from learning. And so, okay, so the thing that I do is I, you know, programmatically figure out who I need to reach out to. Yeah. I reach out to them very politely, um, very patiently, and I'm like very respectful of their time. And then I suck the marrow out of it and I do everything that I can, can from learning. Um, and then once I learn how to do it really well, I teach someone else on the team how to do that. And then I move on to the next thing that I need to learn how to do. Damn. That's really cool.
Um, someone might be thinking this and saying, well, easy for you, Cliff. You, you had all this money to fly around the world to meet people. I'm stuck in my house in my parents' basement. I don't have the money. Like, well, what advice would you give to that person? Well, first of all, I didn't have the money. I, I, I never, ever, ever spend money on a credit card you do not have. But I took out a Chase Sapphire Preferred credit card that gave me 50,000 points when I used it for the first $3,000 and I had to buy a new computer anyway. So I just bought the new computer. Boom, I have points. I can fly wherever I want, right? So like th- that, that, that's it. And um, with time, and by the way, if you have a business and you're running ads, you run them on credit cards, you'll get unlimited flight points. Um, so it, it has nothing to do with money. And even like, I didn't need to go in person. I could learn 80% on Zoom. Great. So that's what you do. Just do Zoom calls with people. Yeah. Yeah, it strikes me that it's like I get a bunch of these sorts of emails and I, you know, I'll see the notification on my Apple Watch and be like, yep. And within like five milliseconds, I can tell, is this a copy pasted email or is this someone who's genuinely taken the time to write a personalized email? Absolutely. And it seems like, you know, a bunch of my other creative friends get this. I'm sure you, sure you do as well, uh, where, um, you know, these like marketing bros, they're probably doing some kind of course that's like, hey, Ali, I checked out your content on aliabdal.com and I realized that your articles could be better and, and stuff. Oh, yeah. It's just like, it's just so obviously copied and pasted. But if I ever do get an email where someone has actually taken the effort to even write just a few lines that let me think, oh, this person actually knows my content. Absolutely. Has actually been following me for a while. Now I'm far more likely to respond to that. And especially if they make it super easy to say yes. Correct. Then it's just almost a no-brainer at that point. Every email I've ever gotten where someone mentioned five different pieces of content that I made and showed me what they learned from those pieces and then asked me a question, I will always answer that question. I'm sure the same is true of you. Yeah. Right? Just... Put in the time to show that you've actually been following, and I'm very glad to interact. And by the way, sometimes I'll miss it, but if you politely follow up, yeah. as I do, great. Yeah. So programmatically figuring out, <laughs> hiring people in the Philippines to scrape the internet for contact details from five different platforms for 100 different people, and then you're reaching out to all of them, and you're doing all of this while you're trying to build your company. I mean, this is how I build my company, right? As you, you got to learn how to do the thing. So, yeah. um, yes, you know, in the same time, we've got the team who are designing, who are programming, and I'm I'm responsible to bring the users. So I got to learn how to bring the users, yeah. right? Like learning is your job. Yeah. So I'm learning. Um, you know, even now, um, I mentioned this thing about CapCut. So I had a call right before this. I'm still doing this, right? Uh, I'm obsessed with learning how to run ads on TikTok profitably. Um, TikTok is not yet a platform that like works really well for us. Um, every company that is succeeding on TikTok, the CEO, the president, the head of growth, they've all received emails from me. <laughs> and if they responded, I've had a call. If they haven't, they're going to keep receiving emails until I get a call. Yeah. And if those don't work, I will find a friend who knows them and get them to introduce me, which I've yeah. done many times. I've had, you know, calls with like the CEO uh, show who's like the CEO of, um, TikTok outside of China. Like I've been introduced to him. Like, Everybody down the chain. I'm con- so I found this guy um, who has an amazing company, smaller than Speechify, but he's crushing it on TikTok. <laughs> I have a weekly call with him now where I help him with Facebook and he helps me with TikTok. Um, I-, I can name five creators, not creators, entrepreneurs, um, who have companies that are smaller than Speechify where they figured out TikTok and I'm regularly on calls with them learning how to crack TikTok. And you'll see that in 2023, TikTok will become one of our number one acquisition channels. But um, I just need to learn how to do it. Yeah. <laughs> this episode of Deep Dive is being very kindly sponsored by Trading212. Now, investment and trading can seem pretty complicated, especially if you're a beginner. 
I've made a bunch of videos about this. And the thing I always recommend is to just invest in low cost, broad stock market index funds, which you can actually do completely for free with Trading212. It's a great app that lets you invest in stocks and shares and funds completely for free. And what I love about Trading212 is that it's also got a bunch of really helpful features that, especially if you're a beginner to the world of investing, it can help you kind of learn the ropes without actually putting money at risk. You can actually trade initially with fake money and you can see how you would have performed without actually putting real money on the line. And then once you're ready to put real money in, you can always switch to the real trading interface. The other cool feature that I really like is pies and auto investing. So pies are different like allocations of stocks and shares and funds that various people on the internet have come up with. And some of them are even like professional finance people. And then if you want, you can just copy and paste someone else's allocation of funds and stocks and shares into your own account. So you can benefit from other people's experience without actually having to do any research for yourself. Obviously, the thing I always recommend is to just invest in index funds. But if like I do, you like to play around with like five to 10% of your portfolio with individual stock picking, the pies and auto invest feature is great for that. There is also support for multi-currency accounts, which is absolutely amazing. So if, like I do, you invest loads of money in the S&P 500, that is a US fund. And normally when you invest in US funds, at least from here in the UK, you're hit with all sorts of foreign exchange fees and all that stuff. And so the fact that Trading212 has multi-currency accounts means that you can trade without getting hit with all these various fees. If you have an Invest or an ISA account, then Trading212 gives you a bonus as well, which is interest on uninvested money. The interest is paid out every day and you have full flexibility. There are no minimums or ceilings and you can withdraw the money literally whenever you want. They've also just launched a new offer of 5% yields on GDP, 4.2% on euros, and 5.1% on US dollars, and many more currencies through qualifying money market funds. With over 24,000 reviews on Trustpilot, Trading212 is an amazing platform to get started with investing. So if you click the link below in the video description or in the show notes, that will take you a page which will give you instructions on how to sign up. And when you sign up, you'll also get a free share, which is worth up to £100. So it's free money and there's no reason not to do it. Thank you so much, Trading2, for sponsoring this episode. And let's get back to it. What was... So what was the journey of Speechify in the very early days when it was just you? Yeah. Because we kind of blitzed over and sort of yeah. it was like you and then there's 28 people. Like what was the you and then how did how did that progress? So, so yeah. I started working on it. Um, I graduated university uh, next. Um, I started flying around the country um, to go to conferences for people learning differences. The first one I went to was happened to be in Florida. Um, I didn't have the money for the conference. I didn't have the money for the hotel. So I didn't buy a ticket. I emailed every single person on the board to ask for a free ticket. No one gave me one. So I rented this very small Airbnb, like 15 minutes away. 15 minutes away. I took an Uber there and I sat in the lobby until somebody gave me a ticket. <laughs> they were just like, yeah, I'll say I forgot my you know, ticket, whatever. I went in, keynote speaker finished speaking. I look around, there's like a couple of thousand people in the audience. I jump on a stage, I plug in my computer and I demo Speechify and no one kicks me off. And when I got off, 12 school heads offered to fly me to their schools to teach the kids how to use Speechify. Wait, so, hang on. So the keynote speaker finished speaking and you just jumped on stage. Yeah. And you just started talking. Because the, the event was like, that talk was over. People yeah. were going to go to lunch. Yeah. So I jumped on the stage like, hi, my name is Cliff Weitzman. I am 22 years old and I'm a student at Brown University and I'm severely dyslexic. And my number one issue is the fact that when I get handouts in school, I can't read them. So I built a tool called Speechify that does it for me. Let me show you how it works. And then I plugged in my computer and I demoed Speechify. And then people were like, wow, that's cool. Um, and uh, uh, a bunch of them gave me their cards. Okay. And then I emailed all of them. And then they were like, yeah, oh, you're in Providence, Rhode Island? Cool, come to this school, come to this school, come to this school. Sometimes they even cover my flights. Um, and I would sit in, and then I, they, they invite me to talk. Like I talk in front of like 100 kids, whatever. But then I'd be like, I'm already at your school. Can I sit in on some of the classes? Great. And after my talk, I would go to every single class and I would give a mini presentation on Speechify and make sure every person downloaded it and I would see what bugs they had on their computer. And if they had a bug, I'd sit in the back of the class and I would code to fix it. 
And that's how I got the problem, the pro- the program to be good. And I did this for maybe like six, eight months. This is when it's just you. Yeah. And you're just starting off with a Chrome extension or? Uh, this was a Mac app. A Mac app. The first thing was a Mac app. The problem with a Mac app is people don't have the habit of downloading Mac apps. Mm-hmm. People do download iOS apps. They do download Chrome extensions, but not a lot of people download Mac apps. So then I built an iOS app as an ad for the Mac app. Mm. That started to do pretty well. And then I was in the dining hall. I had barely slept the night before. Um, and there was this guy talking to next to me. He was a freshman. His name is Sam Rochelle. And when he finished talking to his friend, I was like, hey, can I talk to you for a second? You said that you're uh, a video editor. Do you have a, a YouTube channel? He's like, yeah. So he gave me his channel and I looked at it and it was amazing. He was like such a good creator. And I was like, you're free to meet Saturday at 3 p.m. Um, I want to make a Kickstarter for Speechify. He's like, yeah, sure. We met up. We had this like great day of shooting. But we made a video. It was a really good video. I put it online. Um, and I think it got like 5,000 views. And I put up a website, very basic website, with a Stripe button that lets you prepay $100 for the software. And I, myself, without, I, I edited a video showing how it would work if the program was actually really good. And then he made one that was like a lot better that included me talking about it. People started to pre-purchase the product. And I was like, great. I, like, I validated that it was a real product. And then I started hiring- How many uh, pre-purchases did you get? Do you remember? like 10 or 20, okay. very yeah. few, yeah. but enough to validate that this is sure. something people would participate with. Um, and then I hired, I think three or four freelancers on Upwork to help me code the Mac app. Okay. It was, a, um, I remember specifically, and none of them worked out. I think each worked for maybe like six hours, whatever. They kept being flaky and I was like, I'm just gonna do it myself. So I just set a goal of how many hours I was gonna code, worked on it, worked on it, worked on it. And then I went, I used to teach computer science at a place called Make School, and I was severely underqualified. But three of the other instructors there were really good, and one of the students was really, really good. So then some of them like came as like basically interns to Speechify to help me. And I had this amazing friend, uh, Chaitu, who was like one of the best computer science students at Brown. He had started a YC company called DocTalk, but he needed to finish a year of Brown. And he was literally in Palo Alto going through YC. And I went to a computer science class at Brown that uh, was like an entrepreneurship computer science class. And I convinced the professor to let me into the class, along with Sam, this video editor, uh, Yunan, who was a designer from RISD, and Chaitu, who was not a Brown, and get him to give us a class credit for doing this class, even though I wasn't even a student anymore. Okay. <laughs> so Sam, Yunan, and Chaitu all got credit for doing this class. And uh, he verbally told the class that if you're not attending the class in person, you can't participate. And then... I stood up in the middle of the class and I was like, hey, uh, to the class, not to the professor, uh, Chaitu on our team really would love to participate, but he has to be in Palo Alto for 60% of the time. Is it okay with you, the class, if Chaitu participates and we make a special exception? Uh, uh, put your hand up if you oppose. So nobody put their hand up. And I was like, no one opposes. Can you make a special exception for Chaitu? And he said, yes. So Chaitu got to be in the class. <laughs> so Chaitu, who was a lot better than me in computer science, helped me debug all my code in the Mac app that was bad. Um, and he went on and started an amazing company. Three years later, rejoined Speechify, and now he's the chief product officer at Speechify. Um, and oh my God, Simon, cool. So then I went and I, you know, I was still working on this. I'm trying to like get the Mac app to work. And I came up with this media hack of how I was going to contact a bunch of reporters to write about the app. Because when my brother Tyler is building iPhone apps in high school, I reached out to a lot of reporters to have them cover the apps. So I posted on my Facebook, on Hackathon Hackers, Hackathon Hackers Europe, a couple of different places. I was like, hey, I'm building this app. I need help in this, this, and this. This guy from Bulgaria messages me. He's like, hey, I checked out your website. It looks pretty cool. Would love to help. 
I've messaged, you know, four reporters. And I was like, that's so nice of you. Thank you. He's like, anything else I could do to help? And I was like, well, I'm trying to rebuild my website and I'm busy on the Mac app. Um, I know you don't know iOS, so maybe you can help me with the website. Here's the file for what I want it to look like. I go to sleep, I wake up in the morning, it's done. Hmm. I was like, wow. And then he's like, how else can I help? I was like, well, maybe you can help me hire more iOS engineers. So him and I sat, I showed him how I was looking on like Medium and LinkedIn and like trying to fill out um, engineers who I thought were good. I wake up in the morning, it's filled to 100. The next day I give him my email, uh, a new email, like cliffweitzman1 at gmail.com. And he's messaged every single one of them. Finally, I got him a visa and that took me a while to learn how to do. Again, you just, so now I'm like, Everything to do with law and companies, I feel very comfortable with. Got him a visa, got him an apartment in San Francisco, and then booked him a flight, moved him to SF. Uh, he was finishing, uh, he was studying in Birmingham University, and he had a year where you could do an internship. Um, so the internship was now going to be at Speedify, and he was amazing. This guy's my rock. And at that point, I we, we already started having some success. I hired one senior engineer from Inst- from Snapchat, one from Apple. They lasted like three months. Like they were not. Um, they, they overbuilt things. They were mm. not as, Simon was in the office till like 11 PM every single day. And then, um, you know, we worked together for a while and then I hired a bunch of the students from make school and people who I did hackathons with to come. I got a big house in Palo Alto yep. and eight of us lived there for a summer. And then, um, grew from there. And then Simon and I went together to, to Europe and we stayed in a bunch of different places, um, grew the team more and more and more, started hiring people remotely. So we've been remote first for five and a half, almost six years now. Yep. Um, so now there's folks working in like 22 different countries who work at Speedify. How did you first get the revenue to hire people or the investment to hire people? What was that? Um, uh, Speedify is 140 bucks after a three-day trial. Okay. Um, and so we had people who were, you know, who needed it, right? Kids with dyslexia. Um, so you're getting paid users through this kind of school hustle that you're doing. Yeah. And it's not the school's paying. It's like, you know, kids and their moms paying because yeah. it was like a real product that people needed and I needed. And then you know, 5% of the public school system is diagnosed with dyslexia. Uh, 17% have it, but are not diagnosed. Mm. And then something like 32% of people self-diagnosed as having ADHD. Mm. Um, and so these people were, were finding it from Facebook groups, Reddit, Twitter, wherever yeah. else, um, and made progress little by little. And they're doing a three-day trial. And then what percentage are converting to paid users at this point? Um, oh my gosh, I can't remember back then. So it would have been like a not, it was a pretty good percent because- they were not people who were coming via ads. They were people who would like had social proof, a friend told them about it, whatever it might be. Um, and yeah, I, like that point I was already like in Palo Alto, you had a couple of like, like my next door neighbor gave me some money, like, or yeah. like literally like that level of like hustling. Um, and we grew up from there. And then, you know, I met this, um, you know, a bunch of different people who had dyslexia, who wanted to help. Um, and so I met Mike Krieger, who was the uh, founder of, co-founder of Instagram. Um, and then I met like Ev, who's the founder of like Twitter, um, and, and medium and, um, you know, the founder of audible was super helpful, Don Katz and a bunch of different people who just like helped teach me as I continued to grow. And so are you getting like funding from these people as well? Sometimes yes. Sometimes no, okay. like small amounts. Yeah. Cause I guess like if someone is thinking of starting a company, it's like, because it sounds like you were semi-bootstrapped and that you're just kind of hacking away this app yourself. Yeah. And then you get a few users through the gate who are paying you the $140 a year for it. And then you're using that money to hire more people. Yeah. But that feels like it would be a hard thing because my understanding is in that in tech, salaries are pretty high. Yeah. And so oh, but you how pay, could you possibly afford? Like, great, yeah. no, great question. Yeah. Simon, I'm not going to tell you how much he was paid, but he was paid almost nothing. Yeah. Um, and I was hiring people like in Ukraine okay. to work. 
for us, right? This is part of why the Apple Snapchat people didn't work out. Like their salaries were just unrealistic. Mm. Um, and a lot of people were like interns, right? Who were university students yep. and people who did make school with me and like often people who were in high school. And so to this day, I have this philosophy that I don't care what your pedigree is. I don't care if you went to Brown or Harvard or Stanford. I don't care if you worked at Facebook or Google. I care that you learn fast. You have fire in the belly for the product, high loyalty to the team, and you're able to ship features fast and move metrics. And that's all I care about. Um, and the core philosophy at Speechify is extreme product quality and user obsession, leading with love. We talked about Kaladin, uh, frugality and speed. That's all we care about. And I'm super happy to take a chance on someone if they look legit. Yeah. And if they don't work out, they don't work out. But if they work out, amazing. Um, and so, you know, most of the leadership team in Speechify are, we're all in, like most of us are in our 20s. Yeah. Um, and we have multiple high schoolers who are working at Speechify because they're great. Like Jan was in Uruguay. He was 16 and he found the app and he emailed me incessantly. He sent so many messages. Um, and he sent me like a 10 page uh, report on how to optimize our keywords for TikTok. And he had built a TikTok following of 250,000 people. And eventually I was like, great, boom, here's a credit card, like go hire micro-influencers to help us make ads. And he hired 200 people uh, who would make us ads. And so we fed that into three creative producers who would then make 100 ads a week that we would test on the different platforms. And so, yeah, I just don't care how old someone is or, yeah. you know, if you're good, you're good. Nice. So what what year are we? At? Okay, if you can yeah. Just, yeah. So uh, well, I graduated from Brown 2016. Okay. 2017, I was a visiting scholar at Brown. Yep. Um, in the beginning of the year, by March of that year, I had moved to San Francisco. Yep. And um, a couple of months later, Simon moved from uh, Birmingham slash Bulgaria to San Francisco. No, I like at, the, at at this point, like how much revenue is coming in through the business? If you don't mind sharing. Not a, like enough to, again, we talked about this right before I got here. Yeah. Uh, my brother Tyler was a lot more successful than me at this point in time. He had gone to Stanford, um, was the president of his fraternity, yeah. had made enough money in high school to pay for Stanford, um, and uh, started a cybersecurity business that was doing amazing. He rented this incredible office space similar to this one across the street from Twitter in San Francisco. And I was living across the street in something that was the size of a shoebox. Mm. Literally imagine the size of three of these tables. Didn't even have a window properly. Um, like shower was outside of my little room. And then eventually Ty was like, Cliff, you're living in like squalor. Mm. Just come live in my house. Yep. Again, this is my brother who's 18 months younger than me. Sure. So I had an air mattress in Tyler's house. Um, and I borrowed a table from my parents um, that I put in the house. And then Simon and I would work on this table. And yep. as the team got bigger, we nice. all worked on this table. For the first year and a half of Speechify, I slept on air mattresses and people's couches. And then the next year, I slept in this guest house. There was no office during any of this time. Like I was like trying to make it work. Yeah. Um, and um, the only times I did pay rent is I would negotiate a three-month lease with someone for a house because then I could have interns living in the house with me and yep. essentially that was their compensation. Maybe a little bit towards saving. So like, yeah, not, not, not that much. Um, but when we lived in Palo Alto, we would go to Stanford every single day and we'd give the app to students and we'd have them like tear it to shreds. And it was so emotionally difficult because you're spending all your time for years trying to make this thing work well. And you're like, I can't believe you clicked on that button. I can't believe you can't. Don't you see there's a play button right there? Like, why are you not clicking the button you're supposed to click? 
Um, and so a lot of it was just user experience research. And even today, the designers of Speechify have so many calls with users just to figure out how to make it better. Mm -hmm. Natalie, who runs uh, product operations for us, every user that doesn't convert, um, she will call them and try to figure out like what was the problem? Why did they not have a good experience? And then yeah. we try to fix it to make sure that it never happens again. Um, oh, this is the best thing that I ever did. 15% of the screen real estate at Speechify for the first three years was a button that says message us slash help. And if you clicked it, you entered into an iMessage conversation with me, my personal phone number. And then when Simon started to just like start, eventually he went from an iOS intern to iOS engineer to head of engineering, the head of recruiting, the head of operations, to now he's COO. It became a chat with me and Simon. And he'd mess, it doesn't matter if it's three in the morning, four in the morning, five, we were responding. And people were like, what's happening? Like, what type of customer support is this? You're always available and you're iMessaging me. So the beautiful part is I didn't need people to enable notifications. It yeah. was not like a clunky email. It was just inside of iMessage. I got to talk to so many users to the point that my iMessage broke because it, iMessage is not designed to have this many chats. Yeah. And I had to contact a friend at Apple and it was not fixable. And the only way to fix it was someone at Apple had to delete my entire iMessage history and then refresh it and then it worked. Nice. <laughs> okay, so you're grinding away at this, it seems, for like a solid two years at this point. Two and a half, three years, yeah. And talking to users all the time, really being lean and frugal with how you're operating. Cool. So then here's the, sh the yeah. shift point that you're looking for. 2019, end of the year. I'm in Europe. I'm all. I've already towards the end of the year started messaging all these people. Yep. Around this time, I had this amazing experience with this company, Reflectly, that were amazing at buying Instagram ads, and they were based in Denmark. I started living in living in London. Simon, to this day, we went to this hostel we stayed in. That like literally, there were cockroaches on the floor. We went outside. Someone tried to like attack us. It was it was bad, um, but they had Wi-Fi. Yeah, <laughs> And like we'd both work until we were exhausted. And this was around the time that was, the product was starting to take off. People were listening to more than 100 million words per month. This is when we built the um, Google Ads strategy for Speechify. And so to this day, the Google Ads account for Speechify is in pounds and not in dollars because Google doesn't let us shift it to USD because it started in the UK. Um, and then I, I kept hiring people internationally. And then I moved to LA to a one-bedroom apartment with my friend Taylor Offer, who has a company called Feed Socks, um, feed.com. Um, and Taylor is one of the best people I've ever met at performance marketing. And uh, we shared a house there. Simon came to live with us. Um, by the way, Simon, for one of these years, when I was in that guest house, he went back to Birmingham, finished his degree, wrote a textbook on neural networks. Previously, he was ranked number one in math in Bulgaria in high school, and he just like grinds harder than anyone I know. So it was a, it was a long slog. So Simon's now back, amazing. And at this point, Simon got a green card, which is a really, really big deal. Chaitu informed me that he was finishing up his other company. I flew to meet Chaitu, convinced him to join Speechify. He joined us. I convinced my friend Valentin to break his lease and come join us as well. So now there's five of us living in a one-bedroom apartment in LA. <laughs> and then COVID hits. Uh, how does that work? <laughs> I'll tell you how it works. Yeah. And I'll send you a video so you can share it, it here. It's hilarious. <laughs> uh, my office was a folding Costco table in the closet in the bathroom. You opened the door and you saw the toilet and then you exited the bathroom and you went into my room where I shared a bed with Valentin. Because it was COVID, we put a bench press in that room. You and I had our first podcast on that bench press. We did, yeah. And then if you go into the living room, there's a dividing window and another bed and two people are sleeping in that bed and there's an air mattress and someone else is sleeping on that air mattress. And then there's like two tables in the kitchen that everybody's working on. That's the setup. Nice. Um, Sounds quite fun. 
it was the best time ever. Yeah. And like we do super <laughs> intense workouts every single day. Yeah. We All of us were working towards running a six minute mile. So we'd run every day. It was like summer camp. We lived there for like maybe four months. And by the end of those four months, Speechify started to do really good. So we got a bigger house um, and we hired more people. And we went to that house and we stayed there, I think for eight months. And then we moved to Miami. Um, all of us, once again, had the same house together. Then we came to the house in London. And then we went back to Miami, New York, Seattle, back here. And then we'll be back in London um, towards the end of this year or mid-March, we'll go back to London. Sorry, we'll go back to Manhattan. Um, and all this time, uh, Simon and I are constantly hiring engineers, like nonstop. Uh, we're looking for like the best people in the world to work with. Um, we had more founders join us. Tyler, my brother, joined us earlier this year. Rohan Pavlori, who founded Upsolve, joined us earlier this year. Um, Rajiv joined us from Microsoft, from uh, Amazon, where he led like a hundred person team. Rahil, very similar story, joined us to lead the web team. Um, and we just kept growing and growing and growing and growing and growing. And then we launched audiobooks. Hmm. Well, yeah. What's the story there? So, uh, number one, the number one, if you look at how the Chrome extension is used, the Chrome extension has now been the number one app in its category for about two and a half years. The iOS app has been the number one app in its category for about three, three and a half years. We launched the mobile Safari extension where you get a play button on every single page on Safari on mobile and you click play and it reads and it's amazing. We launched Gwyneth Paltrow's voice. Uh, we launched a partnership with Snoop Dogg. So we have Snoop Dogg's voice. Uh, we're about to add Mr. Beast's voice. Um, and most popular website on Chrome is Gmail, then Google Docs, then PDFs, then the rest of the internet, and then like fan fiction websites and like indie author websites. Mm. We're like, huh, very interesting. And I love audiobooks, but there's really only one app where you can buy audiobooks today. And even in iTunes, they get all their audiobooks from this other app, which is owned by Amazon. Mm. Um, and Amazon is not very nice to authors. It used to be that for audiobooks, they would keep 20% of the profits and publishers and authors would get 80%. With time, because it's been a monopoly, so I, Apple was sued in the early 2000s um, by the federal government in the US for colluding against the American consumers uh, to set the price of audiobooks and ebooks. So they went out of it. Um, now Amazon keeps 80% and gives 20%. Mm. And if you give them an exclusive deal and you're a big author, they'll let you keep 40 and they'll keep 60. Mm. It, if you look at every other platform, like Steam games, whatever, it's usually 70, 30. Yeah. Um, so we didn't think that was particularly fair. Um, and so we went and worked to get all the licenses and we did. So now almost every audiobook you can imagine you could buy on Speechify. Um, we built this incredible backend that allows us to process all these audiobooks. Um, we launched, now we are the, other than Amazon, the only company in the world that has a credit-based audiobooks subscription. And so now you can use Speechify to read any PDF, any physical book, your emails, your text messages, and any book you desire. Um, the yeah. next step is we're launching the function to listen to eBooks. So you'll, there's about 450,000 audiobooks, but there's millions of eBooks yeah. and normal books. And so the next step is one, we're using the models that Tyler and his team built. So Tyler joined the company and in seven months, it went from one AI engineer to now there's eight AI engineers working at Speechify, working on natural language processing, alphabetical character recognition, transcription, translation, and speech synthesis. And they've built models that are like incredible. So if you played around with stuff like OpenAI and ChatGPT, very similar to what they've created, but for speech. Nice. Um, and so a lot of that innovation will launch towards the end of the year. 
I, I have lots more questions about this Peachify stuff. So we've talked about kind of growing the team from basically zero to now you're, you're about 100 people. I guess for most people listening to this, and actually for, for, for me as well, can, can you just give like, if you were to zoom out and just riff on what are the steps to build a startup? Oh, yeah. I say someone's listening to this and they're like, I love the idea of building my, building my own startup. I don't want to work for the man. I want to do my own thing. Yeah. I love the idea of like building a product and like making a difference in people's lives and making decent money while doing it and working with a team in real life. This sounds sick. Like, what are the steps? Cool. First thing is, let's go even more meta. How do you find the right idea? So the first thing is while you're walking around the world, always think to yourself, this sucks. How can I fix it? right? Excel can't do this. This sucks. How can I fix it? Right? I have this like T and it, whatever. How can I fix this? Um, that's one way of coming up with ideas. The other framework for coming up with ideas is think about the following. What technology exists today or will exist in three years that has not existed so far? And what can I build on it? And that means that I will not have competition, right? Because I'm building for where the football is going, not where the football is now. That's number one. Number two is what's a simple to build like Apple website, because if you use tech, it'll be better, um, that has a business model that makes sense. And then you have to decide, okay, well, am I going B2B, selling to, sorry, selling to businesses, or am I going B2C, selling to consumers? If you're gonna sell to consumers, how are you gonna get people to your product? Are they going to refer each other because it has a viral loop? Um, are you going to run ads successfully so that the cost of customer acquisition is less than the first payment period? Um, or are you going to have a sales team like Taymor and, you know, sell people like that. And then um, before building a product, I recommend closing some sales. So either have some companies pay you or some have some individuals pay you. And if that's difficult, start by getting them to give you an email. So for example, go on LinkedIn and write about what the idea is and say, I'm going to build this. Comment your email if you're into it. And the nice thing about LinkedIn is any engagement is like a share. So every time someone comments their email, it gets shared to the network. If you have a good enough idea, people will freak out. When I was in college, uh, this was my philosophy. When I had like a good idea, I'd, I'd put it out there. And you know what the one that did the best was? I took a picture of a cheese spray can and said, I'm building sprayable Nutella. <laughs> this thing got like 200 organic shares on yeah. Facebook back in the day and so much engagement. I was like, I will sell it for $15. Comment if you want the first batch. Everybody wanted sprayable Nutella. So... Just do that, like write them out on Twitter, write them out on LinkedIn, and then get people to sign up for an email list. What I should have done, um, which I basically did, but I could have done it more, is made an email list for people with dyslexia and like parents of kids with dyslexia mm. and sent out an email every day or every week with all the resources that I had, made a video every day or every week, and by the time I started selling my product, I would have had an email list of 100,000 people. That would have been amazing. I basically did this by writing a book publicly online but I could have been even more intentional about it. So um, whether it's selling to businesses or selling to consumers, start by creating content around it. Email list is the easiest one. You can also do a YouTube channel. You can post about it on LinkedIn regularly, whatever it might be, but capture people's emails. That's number one. Once you've done that or concurrently with doing that, but definitely not, this is the second step. This is the first step. Start building your product. Um, you can build 90% of web products on Google Sheets. You don't need <laughs> a website. What do you mean? Um, I'll give you an example. So this thing about findmescholarships.com. Um, we use an API to automatically, automatically identify the best freelancers on Upwork. Um, and we would auto-generate a Google Sheet for you with 100 rows of scholarships that you were most likely to win, depending on your GPA, your background, what you studied, where you're from, et cetera. 
And so we literally gave the people who signed up for the service a Google Sheet, and then the virtual assistants would fill out this Google Sheet. And I had a Google Sheet of all the virtual assistants, what their hourly rates were, how many hours they were doing. That's how I run the entire company, just Google Sheets, because I just didn't want to waste the time building you know, databases. Yeah. A Google Sheet is a database. Yeah. Like everything that you could show inside of any of these things, it's just a Google Sheet. So start with Google Sheets. And if you need to charge people, if you're American, just Venmo request people or PayPal request people, right? All I did was I let people pay me via PayPal. I didn't even need to implement Stripe um, in the beginning. Later I did, but in the beginning I didn't for um, findmescholarships.com. Um, it's interesting you say that. So I was in I was in Pakistan for the last two weeks and I was on a road trip with one of my cousins who's trying to build his own startup. Uh, and we were talking about his struggles and he spent two years building the product before reaching out to anyone and doing any kind of conversations or any kind of sales thing or anything like yeah. that. And so the advice I was giving him to, to him as well was a, everything is downstream of lead generation. Like you've got to generate the leads before you even right. build a thing. And secondly, I asked him this exact question, what does the Google Sheets version of your product look like? <laughs> and he was like, his mind was blown. He was like, I've just never thought in that way before. He thought he was building an iOS app, he'd building an Android app, porting it to a web app as well. Also that he could then show the people he's trying to pitch the idea to two years later that, oh, I've already built this thing and it's really good for you. And I think, yeah, just build it in Google Sheets. <laughs> the other thing that um, is sad and will blow people's minds negatively is, look, I've rebuilt the app at least 50 times. I've rebuilt the onboarding at least a thousand, like, or someone in the team did. Um, it's just a matter of like levels of polish. You got to polish, 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 polish. And to show people the idea, he didn't need to build an iOS app. He could just sketch it on a piece of paper with a pencil. Yeah. That's what I did with Board Break. I would pitch people literally the sketch. And then later, after they gave me a lot of feedback, I built the actual product. Um, so like you said, everything is downstream of lead generation. And it is not the case that if you build it, they will come. If you build a good website, if you build a good app, people will not come to your app or website. Figure out how you're going to make them come. Half of your time can go to building the product, but at least half of your time should be figuring out how people will come to use your product. Yeah. Um, by the way, one of the amazing things that YouTube provides is a huge free billboard that if you have videos that convert, i.e. they have good retention and they have good click-through rates, you will get more users. And so YouTube is an amazing customer acquisition funnel. Same thing for search engine optimization. Same thing for app store optimization. Right. Choose which one you are picking and then go down that rabbit hole. Um, and then the next level is strategy. Okay, if you have a business with a moat where you it has monopolistic tendencies, where the bigger you get, the more challenging it is to compete with you, that's a really good uh, feature to have in a business. And then after that, at the end of the day, a company, the definition of the word is a collection of people. The best people in the world should be working with you. That is the most important thing, the most important thing. And so you just need to be very persuasive to get people to buy into your vision and by and large, people will not join you because they believe in your vision. They'll join you because they believe in you. And so my number one piece of advice, if you want to be a strong founder, make yourself the best person, version of yourself, right? Read more books than everybody else. Work harder than everybody else. You know, work out, philosophize, solve out your issues, talk to a therapist, figure out. People will want to work with you because you inspire them. Um, and that's part of what it takes to be a good leader, right? People will need to be inspired to want to collaborate with you. And so a lot of the people who joined Speechify, especially in the early days, didn't necessarily believe in the idea, but they did believe in me, which I'm very lucky to have people around me who um, believed in me. Um, but it was also because I built 36 different products and like I'd say, I'm going to do this. And then like a week later it was done. And I have a lot of people who joined Speechify who told me, look, I didn't join initially but you told me that you were gonna do this and then a week later it was done. 
And then you told me you were going to do this. And then a month later, it was done. So many times you said you were going to do something that I thought was impossible and then it happened, right? You and I met a while ago. You knew I was a fan of Brandon Sanderson. I'm sure I'd mentioned this to you. And you probably were like, okay, whatever. And then you're like, oh, wow, it actually happened. Um, and so this has happened so many times that people were, when I say things that sound crazy, they're like, he just has a track record of doing the things that he said he was going to do. Mm-hmm. So if you develop that reputation, you will end up with a really good team. And then do your best to get to the most interesting people who you can learn from and grow from, um, not just as mentors, but as teammates. And then when you become a really good person, um, the best form of leadership is seeing the greatness in others before they see it in themselves. And so if you can cultivate the ability to do that, then you're really setting yourself up for success. And so I think that um, to summarize, um, look at a technology that either did not exist or doesn't exist yet, but will in the next three years. Find a business that ideally is monopolistic in the long term. Make yourself the best person that you can be. Validate that people will pay for it. Figure out how to build lead generation before you build the product and see the greatness of other people before they see it in themselves. Those are the steps. Okay, so everyone I've ever interviewed on this podcast about growing the business or their YouTube channel, whatever the thing might be, has had a period of time, generally in the early days, where if you ask them, how's your work-life balance? They would have said, what work-life balance? And a lot of these people, as they get older and they become more successful and they become multimillionaires, at that point, they're like, well, you know, work-life balance is important. And it becomes a kind of luxury belief to be like, take care of yourself, et cetera, et cetera. And I'd like to ask the question of like, you know, if you, do you think the period of hustling and grinding is necessary to get to the point of quote success? Or do you think you can have this dream of work-life balance even while you're building something in the early days? Well, if you look at the sentence structure you used, what does success mean there? Right. And so implicitly success means you are hypothetically more successful than other people. Either you have more attention, you make more money, whatever it might be. So extraordinary results require extraordinary inputs. Um, and the thing that people typically glaze over is the fact that if you work a hundred hours a week instead of 50, um, there's, uh, not diminishing, but exponential returns to the additional hour. Oh, okay. Tell me more. Um, because my intuition on this would, would be d- diminishing returns. Because In some places, that is the case. Yeah. You would think that, oh, you, your, your 99th hour is less productive than your 31st hour. Cool. Uh, let's talk about ads for a second. I went down the rabbit hole in ads, and I found the arbitrage. I figured out where to run ads, how to run ads in a way that other people did not. So while everybody else is fighting over here because they're spending 40 hours, I did the research to figure out a bunch of things. And so I'm now here. And so I'm, I, I'm doing something completely different than everybody else because I'm just just a couple of steps ahead. Um, and mm. so the problem with customer acquisition, it is is a zero-sum game. There is a set amount of impressions per month that exist across all the different platforms. Um, and so you want to win those impressions, right? And so either you figure out how to have a higher attention on your product so you can afford to have a, a higher CAC, um, or you have better ads so you have better click-through rate, whatever it might be, but you end up with diminishing, sorry, exponential marginal returns if you put in the extra hour. Same thing for if someone else has a duplicate app than you, but you have slightly better retention, all the users would end up with your app, not with their app, because you're just objectively better by that 5%. So in markets and games where it's winner take all, it's exponential marginal returns. Um, And typically it's Mm. places where learning is involved or speed is involved. Okay, that's sparking a lot of thoughts in my mind as well. It's like um, one of the things we teach on our YouTuber Academy is that you know, people are always asking, like, what's the minimum viable dose I need to succeed on YouTube? Mm, and I'm like, minimum effective well, dose, yeah. yeah, minimum effective dose, yeah. Uh, so I'm, I, I often quote the number of 10 hours a week. I think if people are putting in 10 hours a week, that's enough time to make one video every week. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you've outsourced editing, maybe it's not enough time to make two videos a week. 
But then people always ask, what if I put 20 hours a week? Mm. Will I be more likely to succeed? And the answer is, well, yes. Because if you if you can make one video a week and, you know, if, if you're making three videos a week and someone else is making one video a week, the extra several hours that you're putting in is actually not diminishing returns over time. It's actually exponentially compounding over time because now you've got three times as many, as many data points. Every single video you exactly. make is a lottery ticket for the algorithm to blow up or someone else to find your channel. Exactly. And you get the exponential returns. Exactly. And so... This is interesting. I've, no, I've, no, I've never thought in this way before because that does make a lot of sense. Because my, my, my intuition before you said that was like, hang on, that sounds wrong because everything I've ever heard, I've, I've ever read about this, just in like articles and stuff is, hey, don't be, don't work too hard because dot, 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 like you need to look after yourself. You don't want to burn yeah. out. But you're right. It's like, yeah. take the analogy of like the Tour de France. You have to get up in front of the pack. Wait, the, the, take the analogy uh, tour, of what? Tour de France. Uh, oh, tour de, yeah, sure. Yeah. You have to crush it in the beginning to get in front of the rest of the pack. Once you're in front of the rest of the pack, it's okay to cruise a little bit. That's mm. why companies who get to become the bit the fang, right? Microsoft, Google, they can be slow. They can do whatever they want at the meandering pace because they've already, they only dominate with the monopolistic business models that make it difficult for someone else to succeed. Mm. But if you want to go around the moat of the monopoly, you have to work harder than everybody else. Now, ideally, the way that you do that is you pick three, four, five friends, or at least one other person that could be working on something different, you and Tamor, right? You and me. We're in a pod, right? You, me, Valentin, Tamor. We are constantly working together and I'll have a call with you or with him and we'll teach each other the things that we are learning together because it's not me against everybody. It's me against like the masses, but I can have, you know, Jimmy or Eric or whoever and or Mr. Richard Branson and we can learn from each other. Um, and so having a pot of people like that who you can learn from is amazing, whether they do the same company as you or not. But if you have seven of those people working on the same thing, at Speechify we have like dozens of these, then you're very unbeatable. Then it's very, very hard. Because like mm-hmm. everything I told you about me and performance marketing, Tyler's doing the same thing for AI. Tyler every day is spending like 100 hours a week doing math and programming after having skipped four and a half years of math in high school, ended out a math undergrad, ended a master's in AI, where he got like a 98th percentile in all the assignments. And now he hired eight other people like him. And Chaitu is doing the same thing on product. And Simon's doing the same thing on operations. And Pankaj is doing the same thing on finance. And Rajiv and Rahil are doing the same thing on engineering, right? And uh, Roman is doing the same thing on and Kai on, on the backend platform. So we, and, and you know, Rohan is doing that on SEO and growth. And so we've had like, there's 20 people in the company, leading organizations that are each putting in hours like this and researching and learning. And, and, and if, look, Tyler, my brother can do a backflip. He wasn't that interested in backflips growing up, but I learned how to do a backflip. So then, you know, he had to learn it too. I learned how to make iPhone apps when I was 19. I didn't have an interest or aptitude for iPhone apps when I was younger, but he made enough money in high school to pay for Stanford. So I had to go and learn iPhone apps too. If you have someone next to you who is so motivated and outperforming at every single corner, you're gonna have to pull that out of the bag and do your best as well. And so surrounding yourself by people like that is key. What does success mean to you? When I was 14, I babysat some family friends and my mom was like, Cliff, it's a full moon, you get 30 moon wishes. So I, I pulled out a notebook and I wrote down 30 wishes. And then I collapsed them into the three things that I would most want. And over time, I consistently reflect on them and I read books and I update my beliefs. And so the three things that I want, number one, is to be the best person that I can be and to have kids who are greater than me. Um, I ideally want five to seven kids. 
Number two is I want to maximize the love in my life, whether it be my family, my friends, significant other. Number three is to create as much value in the world as possible and elevate the collective quality of life. Um, ideally from people who are similar to me, um, people with dyslexia, ADHD, low vision, et cetera. Um, and the biggest way I can do that in the short term is with technology. Um, those are like the top ones. And then obviously I want to be, I want money to not govern my decision-making. Um, so feel freedom, right? And freedom is not just that. Like I practice parkour. Um, it's like a mix of gymnastics and martial arts. Anything that I want to do, like I want to be able to like jump on that and do a front flip, like I can do that. That makes me happy. Um, I want to do a round off back handspring double backflip. I can do that. That makes me happy. But I can't do a butterfly twist swing through cork and uh, so I go and I drill that every week until I learn it. Um, and uh, and then there's like other hobbies. Like I want to have five songs that I have written that my friends play at parties because they like the songs. Because I like music and you know I want that. That's like a thing on my list. Um, and, uh, like I'm very metrics driven, like I want to be 185 pounds, 13% body fat. Um, and I want to have like a bunch of like goals around like how much I want to bench press or whatever. Um, but the first three things are, uh, what success means to me. Um, yeah. And that has evolved over time. What's your process for goal setting? Um, I, I cause you sent me a screenshot of one of your Google sheets and yeah. I was just blown away by how how intentional and how systematic you seem to be about setting goals. And I've never been particularly systematic about setting goals. So I feel like, yeah, I'd love to learn from you. What's, yeah. what's, your, what's your process here? Um, so the first thing I do is I have a group called Elephants with Valentin and Barish. And we meet every quarter. We'll go to like the beach or a hotel or something. And for three days, we'll write out our goals. Three days? Uh, yeah. Sometimes it's, sometimes it's shorter, sometimes yeah. it's longer, sure. depending on how much time we have. We also like, we'll do adventures in the meantime. We'll go like kite surfing or whatever. Um, but uh, I write my goals across seven categories. Uh, love, adventure, music, spirituality, intellectual curiosity, business, fitness, um, goals for loved ones. And I'll write goals in uh, one month, three month, six month, one year, three year, um, five year and 10 year increments for each one of those categories. Oh, wow. That sounds intense. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> um, and the way I do it now is I always will start a, like a bullet point with an emoji that represents that goal. I'll write that and then I'll come back. Hypothetically, I should be doing it every month. I just do it whenever I'm on a plane. I will write. Oh, that's clever. That's where? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, oh my God. I like almost never pay for Wi-Fi on planes. Mm -hmm. um, I just have two notebooks in my backpack and I write out my goals mm -hmm. and my thoughts and I process my goals on Google Sheets yeah. that I save offline. Nice. Um, so I update them and, uh, so like, you know, one month from now and the way that I typically do it is I'll, instead of like one month, three months, if it's like, I'm close to being, you know, whatever age I'm next, I'll fix it to that age. That's one. Uh, two, I had a goal system I used in the past. Uh, I used the same similar categories, but I broke it down by age, like 27, 26, whatever, um, all the way up until 200. I think I'm going to live to be 200. And I even included like when I'm going to get married, when I'm going to have like my, my first, second, third, fourth, fifth, seventh kid, when I'll have my grandkids. Um, and I wrote out all my goals and then I wrote, how can I achieve those goals? So for example, I wrote, okay, I want to be able to do like a Webster, which is like this front flip with kick. Um, cool to do that. I need to buy like X amount of protein powder. I need to have access to the gym. I need to have access to a car. I need to open for pay for like gymnastics. And ideally I want like these two coaches to help me. And I DM them on Instagram and they said it's $45 an hour 
and I need like a $15 tripod to like FaceTime them while I'm flipping so they can like give me instructions. So like I'll pay for the instructors and I'll figure out exactly how much money I need for all of my goals. And so my goal is to make sure that I'm making enough money to pay for everything that will let me get to my goals. Um, and then I'll like look at what my goals are for like the future years. And I base my target income based on what I need to do to achieve my goals. Bloody hell. Um, <laughs> so that's one our, uh, way of doing it. And then uh, I have a thing called Life in Cubes that I picked up from my friend Felix Kraus, um, who made Fastlane. And it's just like from the, and so it's uh, one cube for every week I've been alive. So 52 cubes in a row. And then I'm 28, so 28, um, so 28 columns. Um, and in every one, you know, preschool, high school, this is where I learned how to do a backflip, this is where I read Harry Potter, like it goes all the way back. Um, and then I like project, well, what I want this to look like in the future. Um, Wait, so is this like a Google Sheet or is it like... Yeah, it's a visual yeah. Google Sheet that shows all of this. Okay. So you like 52 rows and like X number of columns depending on what age you are. Correct. And then I can look backwards at the emojis yeah. and like the titles and see, oh, interesting. Like I never thought about this. The first four rows are essentially, there's no events, right? Because I mean, hypothetically, I could write, like I started walking, I started speaking, whatever. And then like the second two rows also like almost no events. But then I learned how to do a back handspring and then I learned how to do a backflip. And then I like, I read the four hour work week and then I like got a six pack for the first time. And then I like, you know, kissed the girl, whatever it might be. Um, and then I moved to London, I moved to Germany and I moved to Paris and I did this and I did that. And Simon joined the company and like Tyler joined the company and we closed this deal with Sanderson and whatever it might happen. And, you know, I uh, published Read to You, great song on Spotify about Speechify. Um, and, uh, yeah, and then I think about what are the things I want for the future. Like, cool, I want to live in New York. I want to pick up stand-up comedy. I want to do Brazilian jiu-jitsu. I want to learn guitar. I want to learn piano. Um, and I put those on my goals, and then I try to do them. Okay, help help uh, coach me on this. So yeah. one of the things I have on my goals is that um, I would like to become sufficiently flexible and mobile that I can do acro yoga. Amazing. Because uh, right now I can't even do a straight leg raise in okay. terms of like hamstring flexibility and stuff. And so it's like, cool, I've got that as a thing. Yes. How would you kind of break down, like if, if oh, that's a goal, like the process of getting there? Fantastic. Um, well, that's not too hard. Uh, first of all, you can already do acro yoga. You don't need to add flexibility. So what is the move in acro yoga that you want to be able to do? Mm, straight leg raise. Okay, great. Yeah. Straight leg raise is your back is against the ground and like, yeah, exactly. and, and but your legs are fully straight or can you bend a little bit in your knees? Uh, fully straight, ideally, yeah. Okay. Um, what is the exercise you need to do in order to get to that level of flexibility? Hamstring stretches. Okay, great. Um, how many days of hamstring stretches do you need to do to get there? Apparently 10 minutes a day for 30 days. <laughs> Great. Set a calendar event. I have this on my phone right now. Um, not for stretching, but for making music. Yep. Every night, I'm supposed to spend an hour writing songs. Uh, I'm currently obsessed with NF, uh, the rapper. NF? Oh, okay. Um, and so every day, 9 p.m. to 10 p.m., uh, music writing. Um, and the song I'm currently working on is a song called The Fire in My Chest. And I write. Um, so uh, have an alarm set for that time and the calendar event and you have to stretch. And if you don't stretch, text me and I'll uh, PayPal request you $50. <laughs> um, or uh, get Tamor or any one of your yep. roommates to do it with you. Uh, if they have the same goal, great. If they have a different goal, they can spend the 10 minutes on the goal that they care about. Yep. That's it. And just do it for 30 days. And uh, you have to do it for 30 days. And if you skip one day, you have to restart the entire 30 days. Hmm. And like add some consequence to yourself. You know, yeah. run... 10 miles, whatever it might be if you miss the goal. Um, but more importantly, um, you can already do acro yoga without doing straight leg raises. I promise yeah, you. Yeah, I've been for a few lessons. It's quite fun. Exactly. It's nice so how far away is it from your apartment? Um, like 10 minutes. 
Walking or Uber? Walking. Amazing. Yeah. Do you have a friend in Acre Yoga? Yeah. Amazing. So one is get the phone numbers of three people in Acre Yoga. Yeah. And every day at 5 p.m. be like, hey, I'm going today. Are you guys going? And then they'll tell you that they're going and then they'll be like much more fun. Yeah. Um, and then when they go and you're not there, they'll message you, hey, Ali, where were you? And yep. you'll feel like it's family, like you'll want to go. Yeah. Um, and have it in your calendar and never miss it. So I just like never miss gymnastics. And I found I missed it a couple of times. So what I started doing is I ordered the pre-scheduled the Uber, um, like five hours beforehand to just arrive at my house 30 minutes before gymnastics happens. And so like, I'm like rushing, like grabbing things because the Uber is outside. Mm. Um, and then I never miss gymnastics. One of the things we alluded to earlier was you said that um, something around, if you want it enough, you'll find a way to make it happen. Yeah. I find that when I set goals, like this acro yoga thing for it, or like, you know, for the last seven years, I've had I've fixed, fixed my posture or kind of become more flexible and these kind of things, or, you know, even last year, a year before, try and get six pack abs. But when it comes to the hard bit of those particular goals, I realized, eh, I'm not really sure I want this. Oh, okay. Uh, and so like- So you didn't want it enough. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So uh, people, for some reason, it's a meme recently to say, don't tell people your goals. Bullshit, tell people your goals. Tell your parents, tell your girlfriend, tell the guy down the street. So that when they meet you five days from now and they go, how's acro yoga going? You're way too embarrassed to say, I gave up on my goal. <laughs> no one likes a guy who gives up on his goals. Yeah. Commit to your goals, plaster them all over your Instagram. Oh my God, there's this influencer, I love her. I can't remember her name, but her bio on Instagram is, I will be on SNL one day. Nice. God damn it, I love people who have a mission like that. I've actually thought to myself, what is the one liner that I can put that is such an inspiring goal? Um, and so, you know, now I'm the guy who's taking down Audible um, or the guy who wants to be responsible for people reading a trillion words. Um, recently, I've gotten really into the idea of gamifying Speechify, where there's a, a store with rewards if you're a kid between the ages of five and 15. Uh, and if you read a certain amount and it will give you like an NLP-based quiz at the end that you will verify that you actually understood, you'll gain points like an arcade and you can get like a PS4 or an Xbox or a basketball nice. or whatever. Um, like I want to be responsible for kids learning how to read. And then we have a language learning algorithm that teaches you other languages that's infused inside of the normal reading that I want to release. So like I'm trying to figure out how to actually wordsmith that so that it makes sense. Um, and so, yeah, enough people learn about the goal. And then I'm committed to it, but also it's on my sheet. It never goes off my sheet. And the only way it gets off my sheet is either I accomplish it or I decided I don't want to do it anymore. And it's almost never the case that I've decided I did not want to do something that I put on my sheet. So you break the goal down into, so is it that you start off with like the 10 year goal and you break it down into one month and so on? Or is it like, like, what, how do you, how are you doing this? Okay. So <laughs> such a good question. So a lot of it is like, where's the goal even coming from to begin with? And so the most important scale in all of this the most important skill for motivation, for goal setting, is you need to hone the ability to dream. And for me, it came from reading fantasy books, right? So I love The Way of Kings. I love Kaladin. The way Kaladin leads his group, I want to be that. I want to lead with love. I want to be the person that when someone else is not succeeding and the world is shitting on them, that I see the value in them, that I stand up for that person, that I'm the one who picks them up. That's who I want to be. And if I read all the biographies that I read, and I've read hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, my two favorite people are not Malala, but Malala's dad, um, if you read her biography, and Teddy Roosevelt's dad, who's just like such an incredible character, but also Teddy Roosevelt himself. And when I think about Teddy Roosevelt, he was super astigmatic when he was young, had asthma, um, like got really bullied, got himself into weight and bodybuilding even before it was like a thing. 
So he was famous as president for having like this really big chest. And then like literally at the height of his political success, he like left his position to go lead a platoon. He recruited himself in the war in Cuba, uh, in the Spanish war. And so the vision I've had of, of this man, and he's amazing and dreaming, Teddy Roosevelt is like, you know, Teddy or me, like on top of some hill, like big chest, carrying a flag and like a bunch of people following towards like some big goal. Like that's kind of like the vision that I have of myself. And then like being a good dad. Um, by the way, you asked like, what's my definition of success? Probably it's being a good dad more than anything else. I don't have kids. I'm not married. I won't be for a while. Um, but that's the vision that I have for myself. Um, <laughs> uh, Amar called me the other day from yesterday. And he's like, Cliff, you know who you remind me of? You're like Andrew Tate, but standing for all the opposite things. So like, I think like the definition of a good man is just someone who's a good dad. Um, and that's the dream that I have of who I wanna be. And that's a very clear dream. And so from there flow a lot of other things. So like, well, that guy is well-read. I couldn't read when I was a kid. I had to practice really hard. That guy, you know, is built. Well, I was very small when I was a kid. I had to work on that. Um, that guy has resources. I didn't have resources growing up. Um, okay, well, what are the other attributes that this person has? And even if you took away all material positions, you took away the ability to code, you took away really most of the things, the tenacity and the drive, and what I talked about before, the AQ is still there. And by the way, Kaladin, Kelsier, all these characters, the tenacity is the thing I admire the most. That's why they're so likable to me. Um, and so the most important thing is to learn how to dream. Hmm. And have a clear vision in your head of who you want to be. And so is there a vignette in your head of you doing acro yoga on your back with someone, you know, held up by your feet? Probably yes. Great. Draw that. Like make a poster of it. Mm. Like I'm sure that you've uh, trained Dali already on your face. <laughs> Tell it. Give oh, me yeah, a photo. That's a good idea. <laughs> Give me a photo of Ali doing like a, acro yoga. Like an AI themed vision board. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that's a good uh, idea. I'm why not? Yeah. <gasps> nice. Just visualize it. Yeah. But also, just FYI, you could do acro yoga right now. You can have your knees bent a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've doubled. <laughs> when did you develop this kind of drive, this vision-led approach to things? When I was six, okay. four. Yeah. Like, I, you know, no one reads when they're, not no one, but like reading is not a thing when you're four, but uh, we had, I would draw, we had like acting, and I really wanted to get the solo. There was like a band I was in called Panine Hasharon. It was like a singing dancing troupe. And it was a solo and I really wanted it and I didn't get it. And so what I did is I practiced for like straight up uh, the week before, but especially the 24 hours beforehand. And my thesis as a kid, I didn't even know what the word thesis meant, was if I do 24 hours of work, no one else will do this. I will be the only person who worked this hard on the song. And the solo, the audition happened and I didn't get it. But it was so clear to the people who ran the choir that I had outworked everybody else in the room, they just gave me another solo. Mm. And they realized that my personality was so tenacious that actually there's a certain um, MC acting role that they just like automatically started to give to, to me. And then I started winning some of the solos because I was practicing so hard. And by the way, interestingly enough, that's exactly what we talked about before. When you just are willing to work harder than everybody else, people notice. Um, and you collect all the space that there is where no one else is willing to go, um, right? That arbitrage. And so I literally, I picked it up when I was a kid doing choir. How do you think about the balance between like self-improvement versus self-acceptance? 
Wow. Um, okay, I actually have a very strong uh, thesis around this too. I set very tenacious, very ambitious goals. And the second I do not accomplish them when the day comes, I forgive myself. And then I reset the goal for a week, a month, a year later, and then I go for it again. I don't punish myself internally ever for setting a goal and not achieving it. Even if I got distracted, I didn't put enough work. There's a reason why, you know, that we're, it, it went somewhere else, like there was another priority, et cetera. Because um, the desire is there. The desire is always there. And things will always get in the way. You'll have dyslexia. You'll be short. You'll get injured. Um, you know, I had a bunch of goals around weightlifting and I injured my shoulder and for a year I couldn't really lift and I couldn't really train tricking, but that's okay. I'm not mad at myself, but did I do my best to heal myself? Did I go to every doctor who could help me? Did I ice my shoulder? Did I do the stretches? Absolutely. Um, but, uh, this is like, uh, uh, it's not fair for me to talk about the things that I'm good at. Let's talk about the things I'm bad at. I'm so bad at going to sleep. I have no desire to go to sleep. I'm so excited to wake up and I don't want to go to sleep because there's so many things I'm interested in doing. I felt guilty for not doing the things I was supposed to do, specifically going to sleep. So what I did is I got a safe and I locked my phone and my computer in the safe every night before I went to bed and I put an eight hour timer on it. And then I configured my computer and my phone, just everything locks at midnight except for Google Maps and Uber. And I just can't use technology after midnight. I have no choice. I can either play guitar or journal or go to sleep. That's it. Um, and so in the places where I'm not good, especially because I have ADHD at self-control, I just set up habits and mechanisms that make it so that I can't fail. For the same reason I don't drink alcohol, I don't smoke weed, I just like, don't indulge in things that are uh, dangerous to me and my personality. Hmm. What's the deal with ADHD? Um, so attention deficit disorder, it uh, is defined by a challenge in executive functioning in the brain. So your brain tells you do this and yet you don't. Um, it's uh, the regulation of dopamine is different in brains of people with ADHD compared to people without ADHD. Uh, one easy test to figure out if you have ADHD is when you drink coffee, is it easier for you to concentrate and are you more calm as a result of coffee? Um, there's a bunch of medication you could take, Adderall, Ritalin, Concerta, Vyvanse. Um, I don't take any. I personally don't recommend it. Obviously, there's exceptions. One of the songs I'm working on right now is about this topic. Um, Read to You is about dyslexia. Um, this other song, uh, Fire in My Chest, is about ADHD. Um, at the same time, kids with ADHD, they're not stupid. They're very, very smart. Um, and they can hyperfocus on the things that they care about and that mm. they're into. And so you see me doing this all the time. I hyper-focus on things, but like, phew, if I don't want to do something, it's so difficult to get myself to focus on it. Um, and you just got to exactly accept yourself. Say, hey, it's fine. I have dyslexia. I have ADHD. Cool. What now? Well, I'm going to listen to audiobooks. I'm going to convince kids in my class to come uh, over to my house and study together, but really they're going to read the book and I'm going to listen and explain what I understood. And Gosh darn it, if there's no audiobooks, I'll just build my own software that makes it easier for me to focus because it highlights the words on the screen as it reads. And like, even if I get distracted because there's a donut, it's still reading in my ears and I can come back and I don't need to restart my place. Um, I'm going to commit to friends that I'm going to do it. And if I'm not, I'm going to run. Uh, I'm going to work out really hard every single day because by doing that, I don't need to take medication. Um, 
yeah, uh, it's on a spectrum. So, you know, uh, different people who wear glasses have different prescriptions because they have different intensity of, um, uh, you know, how their eye is formed. Some people are very ADHD. Some people are like mildly ADHD. Uh, if you think you have it and you're still in school, I highly recommend to go get diagnosed. Um, it is helpful to have the diagnosis because it helps you understand yourself a little bit more. Um, that's definitely the case for me. There's a thing I've heard on the grapevine recently, which is that, and I, I'm I'm not sure to what extent this is true at all, but that loads of people are now, or, or the, the straw man would go that like m- m- loads of people now are self-diagnosing themselves with ADHD yeah. because they think I struggle to focus when I'm, I'm bored of what I'm doing. But everyone struggles to focus when they're bored of what they're doing. So like, why are we met trying to medicalize something which is very natural? What's yeah? I don't I don't know anything about this topic, so I'm just um, curious. No, no, it's thoughts. a good question. Um, so interestingly, you know, dyslexia and ADHD are similar in this regard, where it's an invisible learning difference. Um, you don't see it in a person. Um, everybody has challenges focusing. Yes, and by the way, so um, the other problem is like we we can't measure these things well, right? Like I said, uh, ADHD is caused by. Uh, Irregulation of dopamine in the brain, but like we have no idea what's going on in the neural cleft at all. So it's not something that you can measure on a spectrum. Dyslexia, the best literature indicates that it's defined by there's a thing called mini columns in the brain, um, where uh, if they're really short, you have autism. If they're really long, you have dyslexia and further apart. So hypothetically, eventually, we'll have a way of measuring people's dyslexia. I. I dopamine regulation for ADHD. So yes, there might be more ADHD, less ADHD. You might cross the spectrum, whatever. Um, I have friends who find it very easy to focus on things and they tell themselves they want to do the thing. Like they have, they, they, their behavior is very aligned with their brain's instructions to them. Mm. Um, by the way, people with ADHD are much more susceptible to addiction. They have much more probability of having really big mood swings, being super happy or super mad in a very short period of time. Um, interestingly, they don't hold grudges very much. Um, very happy-go-lucky often, uh, considered irresponsible often. And there's a bunch of reasons why someone might be like this. It might be that you didn't sleep enough. It might be that you have a headache. It might be that you're your period. It doesn't matter what. Um, but worthwhile to go potentially get diagnosed we just don't know enough about the brain. Hmm. Fair play. What does the diagnosis involve? Uh, you go and you talk to a psychiatrist. And uh, if you're a kid, you'll be there for like six hours, maybe over two sessions. And they'll give you a bunch of like little tests and they'll see how difficult or not difficult it is for you to complete them. Um, and it could be something like you know, playing with cubes or uh, it, it, often it includes some sort of IQ test. Hmm. Um, for dyslexia, I can just tell you mine. Um, I scored in every category in the IQ tests that I, I had to get them like every three years. I'd scored in the 99th percentile on every single category except for phonemic awareness and short-term memory, where I would score in like the 80, 48th percentile. And so that discrepancy between um, that category and all the other categories is what defines me as being dyslexic. Um, with ADHD, there's other categories that are uh, impacted either when it comes to this test or just like behavioral. ADHD is a little bit more behavioral. And so the challenge is that it is um, subjective, not objective, yeah. whether you have ADHD, so, but a professional is the person assessing. Nice. And so what are the things that like, let's say someone feels like they do have ADHD or if they have been diagnosed with it, 
beyond the medication side of things, what are the things that you can do to improve your focus? Great. So one is now you know you have a problem. So for me, it was a lot more um, stark with dyslexia. And I was so happy to learn I had dyslexia. I finally had a place to hang my hat. And mm. I go, see, I'm not lazy. I'm not stupid. My brain just works a little bit differently. And that's okay. And so it made it easy for me to accept myself and not like tell myself I was bad. So you asked me, you know, the dichotomy between self-acceptance and, you know, working towards your goals. At a very young age, I had a lot of self-acceptance. I was like, I'm not stupid. I'm not lazy. I'm awesome. I just need to prove it to people. And that's okay. I have dyslexia. I'll figure out how to manage it. And so now you can tell yourself, it's okay. I'm not lazy. I'm not stupid. I'm not trying to be difficult. I have ADHD. It's a little bit more difficult for me to focus. So I need to use other mechanisms. I need to journal. I'll need to use my calendar obsessively. I need to have commitments with other people. I need to have my phone, have the uh, child safety lock, even though I'm an adult, because I can't trust myself with Twitter or Instagram or TikTok. I better avoid alcohol and drugs because I have a predisposition towards addiction. Um, um, if I feel myself getting angry really quickly, I should remind myself that I have ADHD and it's probably not as big of a deal as I think. Hmm. So maybe I should practice some breathing exercises. Um, and when my family knows I have ADHD, and this is the really big challenge when it comes to invisible disabilities. If you're in a wheelchair, no one's gonna get mad at you for not being able to walk down the stairs. But if you have ADHD and you didn't do your homework, your mom will be like, Cliff, why are you being so lazy? Tyler's not being like you, you're a bad kid. No, you're not a bad kid. You just need a different framework. Um, in the same way that someone with glasses, just <laughs> the front of their eyeballs are just a little, <laughs> they have a different lens. Yeah. Um, it's exactly the same thing. It's just challenging because it's an invisible learning difference. Okay, so two more things I want to talk about. Firstly, audiobooks, and secondly, health and fitness. So let's yes. start with the audiobooks. Yes. Um, I watched a video from Brandon Sanderson a couple of days ago where he announced a partnership that he's doing with Speechify. And I remember you you texted me a few like weeks ago saying that, oh, you've got to deal with Sanderson. And I just kind of forgot that, that that was the thing. And then I heard Speechify being mentioned in this video. And I was like, oh my God, like you've got to deal with Sanderson. That's, that's fantastic. Yeah. And he, he like, are you, is Speechify trying to compete with Audible? Like what's, what, yeah. what's going on here? What's the deal? <laughs> Speechify is the only company in the world that offers an audiobook subscription with a credit model. The only other company is Audible. Um, you can now download Speechify, go to the audiobooks tab, and you can get almost every single audiobook on Speechify as part of the subscription. This is a really big deal. Um, the challenge that we found is that uh, Amazon is essentially a monopoly when it comes to books and audiobooks. And it used to be that they would give, you know, 20% they keep 20% of profits, they give 80% to the publishers and the authors, and now they keep 80 and they give 20. Um, and there's just no competitor. And so we just built a competitor um, that was extremely secure, extremely fast, extremely high quality audio, and now it offers all the audiobooks on top of being able to let you scan any PDF, any physical book, your emails, et cetera. The next step is to make it so that any ebook you can listen to on Speechify as well. There's a feature coming out um, that gives you immersive reading ability so you can both listen and read at the same time. It will let me and you read a book at the same time so you can see my notes, I can see yours. Hmm. Um, you'll get notifications when Tamor starts or finishes a book. Um, and so it's all the things that I wish existed in Audible if they had continuously innovated over the last 15 years inside of their mobile app, which they have not. It lets you listen at four and a half X speed. It trains you to listen fast. Um, and um, the next thing that we did is we did the partnership with Brandon where his new series, Trust of the Emerald Sea, which he raised $41 million for, 
you can claim it on Speechify, you can buy it on Speechify, and he elected to post it on Speechify, but not on Audible. And as a result, a lot of other fantasy authors, fiction authors, nonfiction authors came to us and asked, hey, can we do this too? And we said, yeah. So now a bunch more books are listed directly on Speechify. And not only that, uh, Speechify has an a la carte system that is essentially at cost. So you can get most books on Speechify audiobooks for cheaper than you can get them anywhere else. To what extent can I stop using Audible and start using Speechify for my audiobooks? You can stop using Audible and start using Speechify for your audiobooks today. Oh, really? Yeah. Surely not. I mean, come on, Audible's been in this market for like 20 years. Like, <laughs> so the beautiful part is... Yeah, so the beautiful part is... the engine. So Audible, for the most part, doesn't have any engineers. Yeah. They're all Amazon engineers. And Amazon, mainly if you're a really good engineer, you go to work on AWS, uh, Amazon Web Services, or you work on the Amazon store. Audible has become a content shell. And it has a bunch of content from all these publishers yeah. that it mistreats. So we just went to all the publishers and we offered them a better deal. And so they just, just put their books on Speechify now. And so for the first time, Audible and Amazon has competition. And, um, you know, it's challenging because I love Audible. I'm a, I used to be a huge Audible user. Massive. I would listen to 857 hours a year on Audible. But the app has problems. I can't take notes inside my audiobook. I, I, I want reading to be a collaborative experience in the same way that YouTube is. It's not. Um, I want to listen. It's faster than, you know, 3x. And I want to be able to listen at like 0.1 increments. Um, I want to listen to ebooks as audiobooks too. Like there's books that I want to read that are not accessible. Um, and so these are all the things that Speechify is seeking to solve. And I also want a better deal for authors. Um, right now, the deal that Amazon offers authors suck. Um, I would say it's even predatory. So we're solving that. Nice. All right. I'm going to start using Speechify for my yeah. audiobooks from today, and I'll send you a message every time I'm annoyed yeah. by a bug or something like uh, that. <laughs> sadly, I will say yeah. that uh, the audiobooks experience in Speechify, for the most part, is limited to the U.S. Oh, really? Um, yeah. Oh, so damn. you have to have a, have to a, 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 a U.S. address yeah. uh, to use it. Um, why, why is that? Uh, publishing happens by region. Okay. And so we, for the most part, are based in the U.S. So most of the initial work we did in the U.S., little by little, we'll bring on uh, everybody ah, else. Okay, so I can't switch quite fully, like right now. If you're based in the U.K., it's more challenging, but uh, check in when you listen to this podcast and see if the books are there. And if they are, then you can listen to it. Nice. That's really cool. It's cool that there is, uh, you know, as Brandon was talking about in the video, um, you know, starting to become competitors to Audible. Are you concerned about Spotify? Not really. Um, yes, because I, Spotify is great. It, here's the problem. I am a very big user of Spotify. I use Spotify mainly for music. I also use it a little bit for podcasts. It's difficult for one app to, app to do too many things. Yeah. Um, I don't think that audiobooks is a thing that Spotify is like really focused on. And you can also tell by the way that they're pricing, uh, like you can buy basically any book that you can buy on Spotify for like 40% cheaper on Speechify. Mm. So, uh, we have an inherent inherent um, benefit there. Um, I think that it's also really important to be able to sell a subscription because books in general become cheaper. Um, and let's see if that's something that they launch. Um, but I think that Spotify being in the game is really important. Why? Because uh, the goal is to take down a monopoly that is mistreating authors and publishers. And so the more people that you have who are credible in the field, the more you're opening up the field to competition, and that's a good thing. And then you just get to compete on who offers the best features. And the nice thing is that Speechify is a generative AI company. We have the best text-to-speech models in the world, especially ones that run on device. 
Uh, we have voices like Snoop Dogg and Gwyneth Paltrow and, you know, soon Mr. Beast, hopefully. Um, and that's just a better experience. Um, and so I, I'll be happy to take on any other company uh, if it's a technology war. Hmm. How do you feel about Goodreads? I think that someone needs to build a way better audible experience with really good recommendations that includes recommendation based on completion rate, better ratings, and the fact that Goodreads is not integrated into the reading experience is extremely problematic. Um, and uh, I think that it's a great platform. It was built really well back in like the 2000s when it was created and then it was bought by Amazon. <laughs> and since it was, uh, yeah. it's just not where, you know, Jeff Bezos cares to focus his time. Yeah. Are you, are you guys doing anything around that? Yeah. So you'll be able to like see everybody's reviews on the books. You'll be able to see all my notes on the books. And the beautiful part that I'm really excited is like, you know, Ali, you read a lot. I'm interested in what you read. I could be able to go to your profile on Speechify and any book that you care to make public, public I can see that that book is on your profile. Mm. I'll see how many words you've listened to this year. Mm. I'll see what your average listening speed is. Um, and if you make it public for me, I'll also be able to see your notes inside of those books. I'll be able to tip authors. So if I really enjoyed a book, I can add a tip. Um, and I'll be able to, with one click, buy everything that an author has written. And you can have a curation list. Um, and I can, in one click, buy all the books that Ali Abdal recommends. Um, so those are all things that we're really excited to do. We also off, also want to offer the best offer on the internet for creators who want to recommend books. So we talked about this a little bit earlier, but um, we want to make it so that uh, when you recommend a book on your podcast, you'll want to have people come check out on Speechify. One, because it's the best experience, but two, we will pay you the most from any company mm. in the world for bringing someone to bring. Yeah, come because right now I recommend a book and I get like two cents from Amazon affiliates, Amazon associates. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and so, if a couple of thousand people buy the book, I make 20 quid. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So the benefit with Speechify is because people are coming yeah. in and the experience is so good that they stay, yeah. we'll basically pay you the entire value of the book even more uh, because someone bought the book because of you. Mm. Because we know that, that person will participate with Speechify more. What's the deal with, okay, so I read a lot of Kindle on my phone mm. when I don't have my physical Kindle with me. Yes. And I very rarely turn on the audible whisper syn synchronization, yeah. whatever that whisper thing is. Whisper sync is a very poor experience, yeah. Yeah, and it, it's kind of like less good sound quality when I'm listening on audible versus when I'm listening on Kindle with yeah. audio, audio narration. Uh, to what extent is it useful to be listening to something while also reading said something? Extremely helpful. Okay, so well, I'll just tell you my personal experience. Yeah. I listen very fast to audiobooks, um, the equivalent of 550 words per minute, which is about 2.75, um, maybe 3x speed. But if I'm reading and listening at the same time, I listen at between 750 and 820 words per minute, sometimes even up to 900 words per minute, and that's like four, four and a half x speed. When I'm reading, in order to respond, I listen a lot faster because I just need to know like the specific thing and then respond. If I'm reading a contract, I'm looking for the gotcha in the contract. Um, and if I'm reading like an API documentation, something like that, I'm looking for something specific so I can read a lot faster. If I'm reading for pleasure, I still, I listen slower, but I, I can't listen at 1x speed or 2x speed because I want to jump out the window. It's just too slow. It's like, you know, imagine you're a runner and you're running next to someone and they're running really, really slow. You're like, it's not even worth to do a run right now. Um, so I want to listen to the speed that at least I'm comfortable with. Um, and uh, as a result, um, you can listen faster when you're using your eyes. You retain more because you're using two senses at the same time. Um, it's, and it's just easier to follow. 
Um, so you, you, you comprehend and you retain more and you can listen faster. Uh, and you can highlight, you can annotate, you can take notes. Um, so all of those things are very important. Mm. You mentioned it's hard for one app to try and do everything. Yes. What does generative generating AI stuff have to do with Speechify? <laughs> oh, so uh, Speechify is, is a literature platform, right? So um, let's abstract app into primitives. When you save a Speechify file on your phone, it's not saved as an audio file. It's saved as a text file. But then there's an AI model that generates speech sure. that is associated with that. That's like you know, a bunch of code. The goal of the company is to make sure that reading is never a barrier to learning for anyone, no matter what your background is. We want to build a faster bandwidth connection from text to the brain. You know, we don't have Neuralink yet or anything like that. So the best thing I can do is to hijack one of your senses, your ability to listen, teach you how to listen really fast. The next thing I can do is like help level that text, make sure that it's like according to your, you know, level of experience. And I can do that because I can run a, lot, a bunch of natural language processing. And so at its core, Speechify is a deep learning company, right? We figure out how to use narrow applications of deep learning to achieve things that are awesome. Either speech synthesis, optical character recognition, transcription, translation, natural language processing, recommendation engines. Um, you put the text in our system and we want to make it as useful to you as possible. It's very easy for us, given the models that we've written, to do a text-to-speech transformation. But we can also take audio and transcribe it. And then, so for example, we wrote a really cool natural language processing model that given a book, let's say Harry Potter, it will identify, these are all the lines Hermione says, these are all the lines Harry Potter said, these are all the lines Dumbledore said, Snoop Dogg is now Dumbledore, Gwyneth Paltrow is now Hermione, and Mr. Beast is Harry Potter. And it's going to be narrated by Ali Abdal. Boom, you have a new audiobook. Um, there's a bunch of other fun things you can do with an LP. That's one of them. Now, there's no way that I would be pursuing this if Tyler didn't join the company. So Tyler is my brother who did you know, his master's in AI. Um, and so that's not my responsibility. Thank God. Um, and it's like Tyler's building another company inside of Speechify. And it's the case that we had already built to the point that like 24 million people were using the product. And we're like, great, all these people are using us. They have it inside of the Chrome. They have it inside of mobile Safari. They have the iOS app. It's integrated into Gmail, whatever. Um, cool. Tyler make their lives awesome. Mm. And that's like all he works on every single day on the giant projector in our house. He just like 90% of his time is either like straight up math, like kale divergence, um, or implementing models. And all the eight people who work on that team, that's all they do. And then there's a seven person backend platform team, a five person growth technology team, um, like 12 people on the iOS team, um, like 12 people on the web team, four people on the SDK team, and then like eight other leaders in the engineering team. There's eight people in the product organization. There's five designers, um, four product managers, uh, product operations team, and a customer success team. And so they all just work together to build crazy cool things. Why do you need so many people? Uh, there's a limit to the bandwidth that one person has. Like if I had sure. to yeah. negotiate all the contracts with publishers, work with Brandon Sanderson, write the code, do the design, do all the things, sure. I just, I can't do everything. But like if Twitter can function with like half their workforce, could Speechify theoretically function with half its workforce? Yes, I need 14 people to run all the properties we currently have. Okay, 14, that's it. 90% of the work Speechify does has nothing to do with products that are currently there. It's research mm -hmm. development for the future, right? So what I described to you that you went, how does this have anything to do with speech? 
it's research and development for the future, right? The, the voices, the NLP, like most of it is stuff that we're building for the future. Um, and then when it becomes ready, it gets productized. Okay, so given what you know about me, what are the, the different ways in which I should be using Speechify? My okay, great. <laughs> Number one, do you have the Mac app? Uh, I actually don't. No. Okay, it will change your life. I have the Chrome extension, but um, and the iOS so app, the Mac app. The Chrome yeah. extension is amazing. Yeah. Um, but if you remember, I started with the Mac app. Yeah. And I've been improving the Mac app gradually this entire time. Uh, the Mac app is the best product that we have, in my opinion. Oh. Okay. It's just the case that it's difficult to get people to download a Mac app. Yeah. But you are a productivity <laughs> guru. Um, I don't know loads of Mac apps. <laughs> um, and so you should get the Mac app because yeah. uh, you can option click anything on your computer. It will read it. You can option A to increase the speed, option C to, D to decrease the speed. It, you can OCR your screen. It's amazing. Number one, use the Mac app. And like when you're listening to emails and you're designing something or you're doing something else, like just, just listen. Mm. It will make your life wonderful. Um, that's one. Two, um, if someone's coming on your podcast and they have a book that's not yet been released and you want to listen to the um, to the book, just put the PDF into Speechify. Yeah, this is a real problem that I have. People send me advanced copies of PDFs and I'm like, oh, dude, it's a PDF. Boom, put it into Speechify. <laughs> okay, boom, yeah. you have an audiobook. Nice. <laughs> like the nicest okay. voices in the world will read it to you. Um, after this podcast, I'll take this audio and I'll put, you can listen with your own voice. Perfect. <laughs> um, and that, that's another one. The third one is what we, here's what you should really do, bro. Um, transcribe all the podcasts where you talk about yourself, all the YouTube videos where you talked about yourself, put them as PDFs into Speechify, link them in that Google doc that we described and say, write the Ali Abdal biography. <laughs> nice. Make it 85,000 words and then read it and edit it. I will give that a go. That sounds fun. Um, and then most importantly, start using audiobooks in Speechify. So... Yeah, all these but books, I can't including them in the UK. So, uh, <laughs> if you had a US address, so when you when you make the move, yes. if you will make the move, nice, put that address in and you'll get it. Sick, fantastic. Okay, I'm excited about about trying trying out the Mac app. <laughs> yeah, um, Mac app, Chrome extension, iOS app, Android app. Yeah, nice, love it. All right, final thing, fitness. Fitness, let's go. Your hench. How how do you get hench? <laughs> Broadly, <laughs> um, this is a British word. What does hench mean? Uh, buff, buff. Ripped. Cool. Uh, All big, right. Very simple. Huge. <laughs> I studied renewable energy engineering in undergrad. Yeah. The body's a science equation. Um, energy cannot be created or destroyed. Everything that you eat has calories in it. Calories are a unit of energy. That energy is used by either heating up your body, helping your body move, um, or making sure you don't die. Or it stays on your body as mass, and that mass can either be in the form of fat, bones, or muscle. Simple as that. Or organs visceral fat, um, to gain mass, you need to eat 3,500 excess calories result in one pound of, uh, body weight that you add. I'm American. So I use pounds instead of kilograms. Um, the like per week or in general, I probably even general. at a day. Yeah, sure. It's just, the question is like, yeah. is it going to stay as fat or is it going to stay as muscle? Yeah. Um, the maintenance amount of caloric intake that someone like you or me needs, um, we probably both weigh about 180 pounds. Um, I think it, I'm like 150, 160. Okay, if you're yeah. 150, it'll be slightly different. So if you're 150, uh, your maintenance amount will probably be 2,000 calories a day, maybe 2,100 calories a day. Uh, someone like me, it'll be like 2,300 calories a day. Let's imagine it's 2,100 calories a day, including the type of normal walking, whatever you would do. Um, first, you want to break down macronutrients. So the macronutrients are protein, fat, and carbs. Fat does not make you fat. It's just more calorically dense. So in one gram of protein, there is four calories. 
in uh, one gram of fat, there is nine calories, and in one gram of carbs, there is four calories. Um, so the equation is grams of protein per day times four plus grams of carbs per day times four plus grams of fat per day times nine yep. equals 2,100. Sure. Cool. You want to eat roughly 1.3 grams of protein per pound of body weight. Yep. That's at least what's worked the best for me. So you don't need to overkill it. Just eat 200 grams of protein per day. Yep. Uh, that's a little bit challenging. It's about twice the amount of protein most people would eat naturally. Mm. So protein shake in the morning, I recommend like vegan protein powder. Um, I like chocolate. So I do it in the morning. I do it in the evening. So that's already like an additional 45 grams of protein per day. Um, I order protein shakers from Amazon. Um, I order the 32 ounce protein shakers because then I get to drink more water. Um, I eat Nando's chicken breast usually for lunch and for dinner. Um, if you can have like a 200 gram chicken breast, like that is the best, so much protein. And then maybe like a bowl of like 0% Greek fat yogurt. If you do this for 60 days, I guarantee you will get hench. Um, Presumably next, I have to work out as well. We'll talk about okay. working out in a moment. <laughs> sure. I'm trying to both gain your muscle yeah. and lose Fantastic. fat at the same time, which it. is a little, a little bit challenging, but Brilliant. is doable. People claim it's not doable. It's 100% doable. Okay. Um, <laughs> I have the DEXA scans to prove it. And again, I don't yeah, take I've any drugs two ever. DEXA scans so far. There the one go. in June and one in December. And then I lost 3 kg, of which 60% was muscle rather than fat. Ah, this is not what we want. So, this is not what we want. Yeah. So, so the easiest way to prevent the loss of muscle there yeah. is the protein shake in the morning. Mm. Now, because yeah, my protein intake is really bad. Yeah, it's just difficult. Yeah. Like you just got to make it a habit. It's like what I talked about before with ADHD. I'm super ADHD. I remove the ability to make a decision. I wake up in the morning, the first thing I do, I just drink a protein shake. That's yeah. it. <laughs> okay. And I, I like do it. So three cubes of ice inside of the protein shaker. I throw away the ball, two scoops of protein. Actually, first I put the water, then I put the protein, then I shake it in the shaker and that's it. I drink it. No milk, no dried like frozen strawberries in a blender. Just, this yeah. is like just guy. Yeah. Like dudes drink protein shake straight. <laughs> nice. <laughs> it tastes good. Like don't worry about it. Um, you can make it like very delicious and cute, but like you don't need to. All right. Um, that's the base. Then you can add whatever carbs you want on top of that, bread, pasta, whatever. And then you can add whatever fat you want to add on top of that. Ideally, you want to eat 60 grams of fat per day. If you eat less than that, you risk messing up with your hormonal production, mm. specifically testosterone, and you don't want that. Mm. Um, okay. So if your maintenance is 2,100 calories a day, and you use the equation that we talked about before, and you decide to eat 1,800 calories a day, you will lose mass. If you eat high protein and you work out lifting heavy objects, you will probably mainly lose fat. Mm. But our goal is to gain muscle. So instead of eating 2,100 calories a day, you should eat 2,600 calories a day. Why 600 calories a day? We said that 3,500 additional calories at a pound 500 a day times seven, 3,500, you're gonna get a pound per week. Yep. Most likely, you'll get half a pound of fat and half a pound of muscle. Mm. If you follow really clean eating habits and you eat 200 grams plus per day of protein, um, you will likely do even better. You might gain muscle and lose fat, or you might gain like 0.7 of muscle and yep. you know, 0.3 of fat. It's kind of up to your genes and also have to like how tight you are in your diet. Lifting. Genuinely, you don't need to lift more than three times a week. I lift every single day because I love it and it's great for my mental health. Um, most important is to progressively overload. Uh, so add the weight over time and track your workouts. So how do you figure out if you're eating 200 grams of protein per day? Download MyFitnessPal. It's an amazing app and track your food at least for two weeks. 
it'll give you an incredible intuitive sense of how you're doing. If you really want to be hardcore about it, hardcore about it, and if earlier when I talked about like how to dream and motivation and whatever, you were like fitness, 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 and you really get a glucose monitor, there's like three apps that are like amazing for this. Track your uh, thing there and you'll see when insulin spikes and then just make sure that you're eating the right things. It might be that like eating the rice before the chicken causes an insulin spike for you, but like eating chicken first is not, mm. or maybe you're sensitive to gluten or maybe you're sensitive to dairy, whatever. Like also I highly recommend doing an elimination diet, like pick dairy for a week and don't eat it, pick gluten for a week and don't eat it, pick mushrooms for a week and don't eat them and see if you feel better. Mm. So for me, I did this and I found that drinking milk actually reduced my energy tremendously. So I just don't drink milk anymore. Mm. Three times a week, I recommend either using strong lifts or an app called sets that I really, really love um, and just track your workouts. It doesn't really matter what workouts you do. If you're a guy, I recommend uh, squat, bench press, pull-ups. Um, and if you're specifically trying to build arms, remember the triceps are 70% of the arm. And so what I, my favorite exercise for this is take the, the wire. You don't need an attachment at all. Just like grab the calabiner and bend and um, do a 90 degree with your elbow to the back and just stretch it and do 12 of them on each side and do it like five times. And then do the same thing. Uh, I really like getting wrist straps um, for your wrist. You can order them on Amazon. And then curls, one arm at a time. Um, and you'll get huge arms. Um, if you do the triceps and the biceps, and then you do um, bench press. And if you can get to like like 200 pounds bench press, you're like in a great place. Um, and that's it. And so it's exactly like the people who told you like stretch every day for 30 days, just like you can literally do the math on a Google sheet of when you will get to the amount of weight that you want if you exercise and you eat right. And that's all you need. Fantastic. And uh, if you go to my Instagram, uh, Cliff Weitzman, at Cliff Weitzman, C-L-I-F-F-W-E-I-T-Z-M-A-N, there's a detailed Instagram post where you see where I was 167 pounds at like 11% body fat um, compared to like where I started. And then now I'm, I'm, I'm more than that now. I'm like 185, 190. Um, and so, yeah, you can like bulk and then you can cut and you can bulk and then you can cut and then that's it. You have a hundred percent control of your body. It's a science equation. So what you eat and how you exercise, 100% you own it. To what extent does your life change as a result of getting more hench? It actually changed massively. Okay. How so? So I was very short my entire life. Like freshman year of high school, I was five, two sophomore year. I was like five, three, uh, when I was like 15. Um, and I think that if I knew how to work out back then, I would have made more friends in high school, partly because I had a lot of unique opinions. And especially guys trust you more when you're like just legitimately larger. That's <laughs> how it works. <laughs> yeah. um, and, you know, even inside the team, just like, like I feel I can protect people better. Like it is a good feeling. Um, it definitely helps with internal confidence. Um, and like implicitly, it, it, it is good. It's, it's good. It feels good. Um, it's also very nice to know that you can control what your body does. Like a lot of people don't have this part of their life figured out and it causes them a lot of stress mm. and it shouldn't. It is legitimately, legitimately math. You just do the math of what your body needs and then just follow those instructions and you will immediately lose fat and gain muscle. That's it. That's it. And the, uh, like everything else, get an accountability buddy. 
live with someone who is as motivated as you. It doesn't matter if they're further along. They can be obese. As long as they are motivated, you will be motivated. Go to the gym with them, mm. cook with them. Oh, one thing I used to do all the time is I got this thing called an Instapot. I got the biggest one. It cost me $60. I went to Trader Joe's and I would buy a pack of chicken, not a pack, three packs of chicken every Sunday. And I would just make 15 chicken breasts on a Sunday. And I put them in Ziploc containers and I would just microwave them and boom, I had dinners for the entire week and lunches for the entire week. And it made it so easy. Nice. Um, and you don't even need to thaw the chicken. I got an Instant Pot over Christmas. So oh, I can, so I can good. use it for this. <laughs> and but you can buy some chicken broth yep. and put the chicken broth in and yep. the frozen chicken breast and then some like tomato paste. Yep. <sighs> Amazing. Nice. And then like play around with turmeric or whatever uh, or cumin or whatever spices you like. Um, and yeah, it gives you a lot of confidence. People follow you more implicitly. Um, it reduces the stress in your life because you feel like you can, you can protect other people around you. And if I think about like the vision that I had for myself and like being a good dad, a lot of that is being able to like protect my family. Um, and so, so it's good. It's, if you're a guy, would recommend. Nice. Um, final thing I wanted to ask you about, what is your relationship with money and how has that changed over Great time question. as you've become more wealthy? I was very fortunate that my parents talked to me about money a lot when I was a kid. Um, I don't think I ever bought an ice cream as a child that was not like a frozen pop. I remember there's a scene in Harry Potter where he gets a lemon pop and I felt so uh, much uh, connection and resonance because I only got lemon pops as a kid. Like it was not even a consideration. Yeah. Um, and like I knew how much movies cost, I knew how much dinner cost um, and I never felt bad um, about that. And then we moved to the US and the US is a lot more expensive than Israel. And we're five kids. So I shared a room my entire life. It was challenging to pay for college. Um, but I always felt I had control of what was going on because I understood. Hmm. Um, and I had this goal of making $300,000 a year passively after reading the four hour work week. And I uh, thought I'd have $10 million by the time I graduated university. And I didn't. And I forgave myself. And then I reset the goal to the age of 24. And I didn't have $10 million by the age of 24. And I forgave myself. And uh, then I did this equation, this goal setting exercise of what are the things that I want? What are the goals? How much did they cost? Cool. I should make an income equivalent to those things. That got rid of most of my angst about money. Hmm. And then now, um, money does not govern my decision making. So that makes me really happy. I am a huge fan of bonds, like federal annual <laughs> treasuries at 4.7% annual. Oh my God. So sexy. Um, so I, I invest a lot in bonds. Uh, I did well with crypto when, you know, crypto was a thing. Um, I have a, like a long-term view. I like have never sold anything. Um, and uh, I typically will spend money only on like medical related things for people who are close to me. I like barely spend money on anything. Uh, I travel a lot, but all that is off of credit card points from spending money on like normal things that you need to spend money on. Um, I buy instruments, guitar, piano, whatever. I buy gifts for friends when, you know, I realize a friend would like enjoy this jacket or, oh, like this person is using like a normal pair of like wired earphones. Like, let me just get them AirPods and people are delighted. Um, I love spending money on experiences for my family. And I wrote an essay in college 
labeled um, life and money, um, the impact of money on happiness. And I studied it a lot. I found that uh, people who win the lottery, their happiness increases and then asymptotes back to exactly where it was, sometimes lower. People who are in grave accidents and get maimed, it decreases by a lot and then asymptotes back to where it was. People who get married, their happiness increases by 10% and stays there. People who get divorced, their happiness decreases by 20% and stays there. So actually marriage is a risk. Um, I think that having access to good healthcare, access to good food, uh, I don't look at the price when I book Ubers and when I buy food, specifically protein and like healthy food, uh, because I had a lot of problems with this because I moved to San Francisco and I just wouldn't eat and I would like bike places and like miss events and make less friends because I wasn't allowing myself to travel. And so I decided it's worthwhile not to look at the price because it like really, it's hard for me to spend money. Uh, one great thing is Pankaj on our team leads finance and I used to pay all the salaries and I love paying people. Um, but it also feels bad like having money leave the bank account. So I now don't do the, <laughs> yeah. the payroll. Uh, big improvement in my quality of life. Same thing for having out someone else doing the accounting. Um, and the goal is exactly what you talked about before, which is how do you su define success? And it should not be financial. If you look at other people around you who measure success by money, they're not happy. Uh, by the way, uh, I was recently at an event where there was like, Elon Musk was there, like the CEOs of like 30 of the top 500 companies in the world were there. Um, you know, a bunch of authors that we know and love. Um, the people who were the happiest, one was Saul Khan from Khan Academy, who I really admire. Um, and by and large, it's people who have been in long-term committed relationships um, and people who take really good care of their health. Um, I think that those are the things that I saw have the highest correlation with human thriving. Um, and then you just got to make sure that you're actively, actively learning uh, and growing and ideally contributing to the world and keep an open mind and like have childlike wonder and curiosity. Um, and so just think about money as like literally this is like the best exercise to do from the four hour work week. Sit down, write down what you want in your life. Do you want three kids, five kids, seven kids? Uh, where do you want to have a house? How many times a year do you want to take vacations and how much will those vacations cost? You know, how much money do you want to spend on clothes? Do you want one car, two car, three car? What type of car? Do the math for how much money you need. Cool. Great. So I did that. I figured out that to have the life that I wanted, I needed $500,000 a year. And beyond that, I just wouldn't have a use for the money, right? I did the math. Okay, let's say I have like, you know, five kids. I need a house that's going to be like $3 million and, you know, actually we're balling out $10 million house, right? Um, I'm going to take ski vacations with like ski chateaus, like three or four times a year. Uh, I'm going to have three cars, um, you know, for me, my partner and like our kids, um, blah, 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 did all the math. Um, you know, I'll spend like $2,000 on clothes per month. Um, like really find the limits and then I need to pay, you know, 70 K per year per kids per college. So I figured out exactly across the next hundred years of my life, how much money I'm going to spend came out to, I needed about $500,000 a year. Cool. I also want to be free when it comes to my time. I want to spend my time with my kids. So let's imagine on an interest rate, 5% guaranteed. Um, okay. So I need $10 million in a bank account yielding 5% per year. And that's $500,000. That's it. Every single person watching this video, take out a piece of paper, take out notes and just do this math. How many kids do you want to have? 
how much is your house going to cost? What cars are you going to drive? How much miscellaneous costs are you going to spend on healthcare, books, music instruments, whatever? Figure out how much money you need per year and then apply either a 5 or a 7% or a 10% rate of return. Figure out how much money you need in the bank account. That's how much money you need. Work towards that money and then you're set. That's it. Interesting. Yeah, okay. I'm, I'm going to try this exercise because I find that I, I've, I've done the exercise in the sense of sort of for now, like what's a good amount of money that I want to live on, Correct. assuming I'm balling out and all the yeah. things I want to ball out on. But I haven't actually thought about it for the long term in terms of how many kids I want to have and, and that kind of thing. And by the way, that desire I had for $10 million by the time I graduated college or by the age of 24, it's based on this exercise. And then I had a conversation with my dad and he's like, why do you need $10 million? And I'm like, oh, because I have this like math and whatever is a cliff. Well, I married your mom when I was 36. And at the time I like didn't have that much money, but I had a law degree and I had a CPA degree and I knew I was able to make the money to afford the things that we needed. Hmm. And that caused a huge paradigm shift for me. And that's when I started to focus on, well, these are my goals now at the age of 24, 25, 26, 27, 28, 29. Let's just make sure that the income I have coming in is matching those goals. And so very important to say, you don't need $10 million in the bank account. You need that if you want to stop working, but you're not going to stop working. So, okay, let's imagine that you want to retire when you're 60. That's when you need this money. Um, until then, just gradually, okay, I'm going to move from sharing an apartment with my friend Nick uh, where the apartment is $1,500 and I pay half, so I need 750 And then I pay about $250 a month for food, let's say. Um, and other like, cool, I need $1,500 per month. So multiply that times 12, and that's post-taxes. That's how much income that I need. Great. Let's imagine that by the age of 30, 26, I want to live on my own. And I want to live in like Manhattan. So I need $3,500 per rent. Um, and I'm actually going to pay $1,000 uh, uh, a week for food because I'm going to go out with friends a lot. And I've gotten really into guitar. And there's like a bunch of guitars I want to buy and I want to go to festivals, whatever. Cool. All right. Little by little, that cost grows. And by the time of 30, I want to have enough money for a ring. And I want to start saving up for a down payment for a house because when I'm 33, I'm going to put 200000 down on a house. And this and this and that. So by every age, you can figure out how much money you need. Just plan accordingly. Hmm. Nice. Have you noticed that as you've made more money, you've become happier? Great question. Hmm. No. The happiest I've ever was, and I could tell you exactly how this works, is when I was 18 years old and I, for the first time, set foot at Brown University. And everyone was interesting and interested. I got to take classes and things that I was very curious about. I met people from all over the world. The rate of change in my life was massive because I was bored in high school. And every year it was amazing, but it was slightly less exciting. And then now I'm super excited because I live with a lot of people who I love. It took a long while to reproduce that college experience in real life. I find that for me, uh, I feel the most thriving when I am growing, when I am learning, when I'm in new experiences, when I'm pushed outside my comfort zone. Hmm. That's what makes me happy. That and building new and lasting relationships and investing in relationships uh, with people that I love. Like, you know, Tim Ferriss is a great line. Your success in life can be measured by the number of difficult conversations you're willing to have. The version of that that I have is your success in life can be measured by the number of conversations you finish with I love you. Mm. Um, that's a lot, in my opinion, more important because mm. that's how I define success. And so I call people who I love all the time mm. and I check in on them, right? Today I message probably like five, six different people. Hey man, just wanted to check in. How's it going? Love you. Members of my team, 
friends, people I haven't seen for like a year or two, mm. family members. And I'll call people out of the blue all the time. If I'm in an Uber, I'm calling someone. Unless I'm like really into Miss Bourne at the moment. Um, and uh, no, but I'll tell you what did change. My freedom changed. And the quality of life of people around me changed. Because anyone who I loved who was stressed for financial reasons, I, sol I solved it. That was huge. Hmm. And that made me happier. And that made me feel more secure. So money made me feel more secure. Um, uh, another couple of thoughts that I think are very important. There's an equation for happiness, which is what you expect minus what you get equals how you feel. I, to a degree, pity people who are born tall, muscular, smart, wealthy. Where do you go from here? Hmm. Like think about the guy who was born like Rockefeller Jr. Poor Rockefeller Jr. Like he's not going to outperform his dad. Hmm. What's the point of him trying to make money? A lot of the times, you know, kids who are born to extremely wealthy parents end up on drugs. Um, and it's because like, where else are you going to go for fulfillment? Because the real world just doesn't have much for you. That rate of growth is what makes you happy. Hmm. Um, and so by the way, if you are in that place, Either start a not-for-profit and measure your success by how much positive impact you have in the world or pick up an artistic pursuit, painting, guitar, whatever you want. And so one important thing, by the way, I rephrased one of my goals as a result of Valentine. I had a goal to have a song that I write be in the top 100 charts at Spotify. And that's shifted. So I want to write a song that my friends play at parties because they want to. And ideally I'd want it to be like five songs like hmm. that. Or even like a song that I want to play at parties for my friends. Yeah. Like see if you can put your goals and make them self-directed uh, and self-judged as opposed to externally judged. Mm. Um, and so that rate of growth is really important. Um, and, and, you know, there's a study that came out that um, money up until $75,000 a year makes you happier. And then after that, there's diminishing marginal returns. I see that as relatively true. I don't think the number is $75,000 a year now. It's probably like 150, 200, 250. Um, that's a lot of money. It's very difficult to make that amount of money. Um, another reason why it's good to learn computer science because it's easy to make that money if you know computer science. Um, and the other thing is like people who start companies and build stuff, the real joy doesn't come from the money. The real joy comes from the way that you change in order to do great things. You know, like we said earlier, um, outstanding results required outstanding input and outstanding input requires an outstanding individual or an outstanding team, even better. And so you have to change to be able to do outstanding things. And I think that the thing that generates the most satisfaction, because you use the word happiness, which is a difficult, slippery word. So you can think about the word bliss, which is like you know short-term joy, or you could think about the word eudaimonia in Greece, um, human thriving, satisfaction. Um, that's kind of more of what you want. Um, you wanna be proud of yourself. And that is, so it's a mix of like feeling proud of yourself and having meaningful relationships with other people. Hmm. Those are the two most important things. And that's what yields happiness. Nice. I think that's a great place to end this. Clay. I think it's a great place. Thank you so much. Ali, thanks for having me. All right, so that's it for this week's episode of Deep Dive. Thank you so much for watching or listening. All the links and resources that we mentioned in the podcast are gonna be linked down in the video description or in the show notes, depending on where you're watching or listening to this. If you're listening to this on a podcast platform, then do please leave us a review on the iTunes store. It really helps other people discover the podcast. Or if you're watching this in full HD or 4K on YouTube, then you can leave a comment down below and ask any questions or any insights or any thoughts about the episode. That would be awesome. And if you enjoyed this episode, you might like to check out this episode here as well, which links in with some of the stuff that we talked about in the episode. So thanks for watching. Uh, do hit the subscribe button if you aren't already, and I'll see you next time. Bye-bye.